Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 21 Trapped She felt a piercing headache as she slowly regained consciousness. Blinking her eyes rapidly, she reached out to touch the source of her pain, finding her fingers sticky with blood. Ow! What happened? She slowly recalls the events from earlier. This is amazing. She stares up at the crumbling moss-covered tower. There isn't actually an intelligent species here. Look at these markings. She brushed away the moss to reveal several scratches etched into the walls. Joe! Look, I think there is a language. Come on, relax, Christ. Joe grumbles as he sets down his day pack on the floor. These ruins aren't going to run away. Hey, guys, over here. I think we found a way in. Dan called. I walked around the tower and the entrance seems to be totally caved in. But guess what? Look here. He leads the rest into a side building where the roof has collapsed partially. That looks like a way in. Dan shines a flashlight at a small opening at the pile of collapsed stones. I don't know. It doesn't look very safe, Joe muttered. We better get the marines to scout it out for us. <laughs> what do you think there's a giant wolf inside? Christine jokes. Come on, I studied this in university. Finally, I get to use what I learned. She turns and smiles at the rest, her back towards the hall. Well, I think we should tell the marines first. Dan also cautions. We don't know what could be in there. Suddenly, Christine heard something behind her like some scratching against the wall. She turns around from the light and dance torch. A hideous creature appears out of the hole, grabbing her foot. She remembers falling face down on the floor before darkness consumed her. Hey, you awake? A voice sounds next to her. Christine tries to nod her head but gave up after a while of her giddiness made her gag. Take it slow, you've got a nasty bump. What's going on? Where am I? Why am I naked? She shrieks at the last part. Whoa, chill girl, Carl backs off. You are corpos, green skin thingies. You nearly became supper. What? Confused with the surroundings, she glares around the hall. Seeing the spread of dead all over the floor, her brain slowly catches up with a sense of smell and reason. Ugh. She vomits over the side and wipes her mouth with the clothing draped around her. She realizes that the clothing is what the marines usually wear. Thanks, she said in a small voice. Ha! Huh, don't thank me. Carl smiles and jerks his head towards another person, crouching over what looks like a huge paw. Carl James there rushed to save you and gave you his shirt. Carl reaches out to hand help Christine up. Thank you, Christine said to the marine, poking around the contents of the pot after she buttoned up the marine BDU. While Carl looks away. No problem, it's my job, the marine said before standing. You better... Let's go then. So what's inside that cooking pot? Carl asks as they re-enter the passageway. Carato, a piece of some kind of meat and bones, and some kind of herb, and the liquid seems to be blood for some animal. And of course, plus one human girl. He laughs along with Carl as he said the last part. Wait, you mean I was inside that pot? Christine asked in surprise. Yep. Yucks, that's... that's disgusting. Christine suddenly felt her whole body was sticky. <laughs> if Mills was here, James grins, he probably has a joke for the two for this kind of situation. Hey, 
Corporal, Cole stopped suddenly. You hear that? They all stopped to straight their ears. I think it's some kind of rumbling, Christine guessed. I don't know about you, but it kind of sounds like boots. Marching boots, James said. No, not boots. It's drums. Cole turns to look at them. Lots of drums. Go! James pulls Christine. Go back to the surface. And the trio start running. As they're about to reach the intersection, several growing lights appear in front of them, blocking their way out. Crap! Must be the greenskins! Something strikes the wall beside him. An arrow! James looks on in surprise. Back to the hall! They ran back over the bodies and stood next to the overturned pot. Where to now? Christine asks as they look around the other passageways leading out of the hall. We can't go in those. We don't know where they lead to, James said. We make a stand here. He points at the door at the end of the hall. I checked it out earlier. It seems to be some kind of storeroom for the greenskins. They entered the room, finding the parlor stuff, and without any of the other ways in or out. Cole taps the double doors and whistles. Some kind of metal, pretty solid. Cole, on me. We move the pot into the room and help block the doors. Christine grabs some torches from the walls and use the light sources and see if there's anything useful. James ordered. Over the constant rolling sounds of the drums, Coles and James roll the pot into the room. It barely fits through the doorway, and Christine slots a couple of torches onto the wall torch holders and drops several unlit torches on the floor. Just as they close the doors, they spot the dozens of screaming greenskins bearing torches storming into the hall. Lifting the heavy cauldron till it seats on its mouth, the Cole and James exhaust themselves. Just as they rest against it, the metal door clangs loudly as the dozens of tiny hands slam against it. Quick, push it to block the door. The door swings inward and several green snarling skins could be seen trying to squeeze their way into the narrow gap. James pulls out a grenade from his pouch and lobs it through the door gap before calling Christine into a corner behind the pot. Fire in the hole, he yells. A loud blast followed by shrieks of pain and the pressure wave against the door ceased. Okay, push. Finally, the huge upside-down pot acting as a doorstopper, the doors are blocked, preventing the greenskins from forcing the doors open and the humans in the room slump down against the pot to catch their breath. End of chapter. Chapter 22. Moss. Cries and the constant banging on the metal doors grits on everyone's nerves, but the doors remain firmly shut. The three of them thus took the time to explore the room thoroughly. This racket is making me crazy, Christine moaned, the banging against the doors and the sounds of the drums at the back. I wish they'd stop. She lifts up a piece of threadbare rag from a pile of dusty cloth. Think they ate all of these people? She indicates the pile of rotting clothes. Cole shrugs. Maybe. He lifts up what appears to be a broken spear, a metal badly corroded. Nothing of use or all spoiled. He drops the spear back into the pile of broken weapon shards. They seem to be using stuff from museums. James stood at the raised platform in front of what appears to be a block of chiseled stone, but the majority of it has been destroyed and vandalized by the greenskins. This appears to be some kind of throne or a stone chair here. He looks around the room at the dim lights. Eight finely chiseled pillars and a dart defecated by standing four by four on each side of the room. 
This is supposed to be a throne room, he exclaims. Yes, it is quite obvious. Christine gave a brittle, anguished noise. She indicates the raised platform and says, That is where the monarch sits, viewing down on his or her subjects. She steps up to the platform next to James. This is probably used for ceremonies. The pillars could be carved beautifully by looking at the vandalism. You can see how they knock off the carvings. You seem to know a lot about this stuff, James said. Yep, graduated from Cambridge. I majored in archaeology and history. She replied, it's actually quite exciting to find these alien ruins. Why did you sign up with the Navy? James asked curiously. Well, seeing all my friends get drafted or volunteering, plus the money pays off my student loans, and I get to see the stars, Christine shrugs. You? Well, I came out of college, worked for a few years at odd jobs, James said casually. When the war started, I decided to do my part for mankind. He smiles. Actually, I just want to escape my life. A change of pace. So, how's the change of pace now? Christine gestures around them. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting, actually. James smiles. Hey, you two love birds. Cole spoke up from where he stood at the edge of the doors. I don't hear anything at all. The two of them blushed after hearing Cole's words, but soon realized that it had suddenly gone quiet. The drums, the cries, and even the banging on the doors have stopped. They quickly joined Cole at the doors. Did help come? They retreated. I don't know. Suddenly they all fell quiet. I'm getting a bad feeling here, Cole whispers. Okay, take it back, my wish. It's starting to feel real creepy, Christine whispers back. Why is everyone whispering? James asks in a low whisper. Cause it's quiet out there. Cole hisses back. Suddenly, the beating drum sounds again, except it seems louder. Cole backed away from the doors and raised his shotgun. Bad feeling, he repeats. James hands Christine a pistol and two stacks of pistol magazines. I found your stuff earlier, most of it was trashed, but the gun and the ammo aren't damaged. Christine grabs the G88 and works the slide and holds the two-handed grip. Why didn't you give it back earlier? She pockets the magazines from the Marine BDU chest pockets. Um, you didn't have any way to carry it. James gave her a quick check with his eyes, smiling. Jerk, she responded, turning away to hide behind a pillar, facing the wall and the small smile. Boom, 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 boom. The drums keep beating louder and louder. It sounds like the drums are just right outside the doors. Cole and James step back from the doors. Cole took the left side of the room while James covered the right side. Boom, 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 boom. Then, silence. Blam! Dust dribbles down from the ceiling and even the pot slides back slightly from the sudden impact. Christine gave a frightened cry while both Cole and James jump up in surprise. Another huge crashing blow and the doors creak ajar. A dent could be seen. What the hell is that? Cole yells. The green skin seen in the doors getting destroyed shrieks excited and joy. Cole, you got any grenades? James asks. Nope, I only have one smoke, Cole replies. I'm going to throw my last grenade through the door before they break it down. James said and he pulls his last grenade out, activates it and tosses it into the opening. A muffled blast sounds making more rock and dust trickle down from the roof. More screams and pain and agony could be heard around the doors. Nice one, 
Cole gave him a thumbs up. A deafening roar erupts from behind the door, causing them to flinch. The door shook again as something massive stamps against it. Um, I think you made the thing angry. Christine's voice came from behind one of the pillars where she hid. All right, make ready. They're coming. Cole gave a warning as the pot starts to tilt up and towards the constant hammering. Here they come. With the space large enough for a child-sized green skins appears between the door, they mindlessly rush into the room meeting thunder and fire. Cole left his shotgun leaning against the pillar instead he drew his Glock 88. Each magazine of the Glock holds 32 rounds of 5mm CT ammunition. He aims and fires at the green skins at the center one by one, dropping them with single shots. James keeps watch over the stragglers and his side of the room. As the opening was towards Cole, there weren't any greenskins for him to shoot at. James turns around to see Christine's red hair hidden behind the furthermost pillar at the back. She notices him watching her and gives a small wave of the pistol before turning her attention back to the door. Suddenly, something massive shoves the door all the way back, causing the pot to slide in one side. A creature over three meters tall wielding what appears to be a large stone pillar looms over the mass of green skins then rushed excitedly into the room. End of chapter Chapter 23 MVP The bright beams of lights from Cole and James managed to blind the majority of the green skins as they rushed into the room. They raised their small arms and hands to cover their eyes from the bright light shining in their faces and died. The large creature at the rear bends down to turn away as the glare of the lights and roars in anger. Ignore the large one, James yells as he hoses the green skins with his M7A1, crowding at the door. Cole hosts his Glock and picks up his shotgun. He fires the 12-gauge 00 buckshot directly in the middle of the group knocking the green skins down like bowling pins. Even Christine at the back fires into the mass. Similar, like before, faced with overwhelming firepower, the green skins panics and tries to flee from the thunder and the fire. While the rear kept the front from fleeing, the panicking green skins attacks the ones behind them and are blocking their retreat in their rush to escape the madness. The host of green skins soon turn into a rout, while the large grey-skinned humanoid creature scratches its head in confusion. It rolls out again and bends down to enter through the doorway, only to meet James and Cole's fire. It topples back with half its head gone and holes in its body and crushes the remaining green skins loitering around it. Advance, James shouts. He drops and snaps in a new mag into his M7A1 and advances tactically forward firing in short bursts at the routed greenskins. Cole follows along, starting new shells into his shotgun and supports James from the rear. Seeing James and Cole advancing into the enemy, Christine thought, What the hell? Are they so enjoying this massacre? But she follows grimly along behind them. Men. Why are you chasing them? Christine shouts after James and Cole as he catches up behind them. They're running. We're winning. We are facing them to run more, not letting them regroup so that they can attack us again, James explains. We are putting the fear of God up their asses. And he continues firing and disappearing back so the green skins. All right, let's go before they form up again. Returning to the passageway where they entered into the hall, James took a lead while Cole covers the rear. 
keeping Christine in the middle. They rush backwards towards the intersection, only to find a block by more greenskins. Under the glow of burning torches, dozens of greenskins form up in loosely three rows, with the front holding crude bucklers and shields made of animal hides. The second row held wooden poles fastened into spears, while the third row holds bows, crooked and ready. Standing behind them milled more greenskins outfitted in all manner of ancient weaponry, from stone axes to crude swords. A particular greenskin stood out from the rest, and was dressed in a dark feathery robes with a helm made of bones with twigs and horns sticking out from the sides, and it also held a staff topped with a reddish crystal that appears to be made of some spine of some creature. For a moment both sides stare at each other, the shaman-looking greenskin suddenly shrieks something and points towards the humans, and the greenskins rush forward screaming. Will they ever stop? Cole curses. He pumps shot after shot into the screaming greenskins, sending them flying back broken. James tried to fire at the shaman, but the shaman raises its staff and gestures something, and for a strange reason the shot appears to hit an invisible wall. In the end, he gave up and he fires at the enemies in front of him instead. Even with the tactical lights blinding the greenskins, they still keep rushing and dying with no signs of breaking. Ah! Cole grunts in pain as an arrow pierces his left thigh. His legs suddenly weaken, making him fall down. Cole! Christine screams. She rushes forward and drags him backwards with one arm, while the other arm fires a pistol into the mob. Cole abandons his empty shotgun and drew his G-88 and starts shooting while pushing himself back with the help of Christine. James's rifle suddenly locks back. He does a quick tilt and check the bolt. Crap! I'm out! The mob of greenskins just a meter away from him. He drops his rifle and slings it and draws his machete from his back with his right hand and he holds his pistol in his left. The monomolecular diamond blade is used for cutting trails in the jungle's undergrowth, but this time around it was used to cut down greenskins. The one molecule thick diamond edge slices and dices all that come near James. He chops and hacks the mob surrounding him and fires pistol when they pull out of range with his machete. His adrenaline causing him to ignore the cuts and stabs from the greenskins surrounding him. He fought like a demon and emptied his pistol into the crowd as they howled back from him. Suddenly there was a flash of light and James found himself slammed backwards. He falls down and looks down at his chest armor, seeing a smoking crater on it. What? Do they have laser weapons? James looked up and saw the shaman waving his staff around and shrieking something. A ball of fire suddenly forms in front of the shaman and he points the staff at James. The fireball flew towards him. James quickly rolled out the way. The fireball left a scorching mark on the stone floor where he was earlier, a plasma gun of some sort. The mob of greenskin seeing the human taking a hit from the shaman regains their courage and charges forward again, shrieking in excitement. James lashes out with his machete, lopping off legs and opening up stomach. He manages to clear some breathing space as he gets up to his feet and faces the shaman. He was about to rush the shaman and several beams of light shone from the rear of the mob, and thunder and fire rains into the shocked green skins. Reinforcements! James screams in joy. They're finally here. 
He turns to see Cole, an arrow sticking out from his thigh, leaning against the wall on the floor, a large stain of blood on the stone floor, and Christine with her tear-strained face, trying frantically to stop the bleeding. Oh no. End of chapter. Chapter 24. Loot. Call. Christine cries as she applies pressure to his thigh. An arrowhead that had nicked a femoral artery, causing Cole to slowly bleed out. She tries her best to press down hard on the wound. James looks back at the greenskins, seeing them distracted by the force attacking from their flanks. He quickly rushes up to Cole and Christine. He grabs a self-sealing bandage from his first aid kit and rips Cole's pants away. He pulls the arrow swiftly out before slapping the self-sealing bandage over his wound. The bandage with the medical knife lights quickly dispenses fast clotting agent and stops the bleeding temporarily. The medical nanites then enter the wound and start to repair as much damage of the muscles and tissues and the nicked femoral artery. James looks at Christine and said gently, He should be fine for now. Don't move him. Try to keep his leg elevated. He rubs the tears away from her face. Keep him safe before he stood up and he returns to the fight. The rescue team that came in manages to suppress the whole Greenskin army. The Greenskins are with the shields and bucklers raises them to form a shield wall, only to prove useless as the bullets still penetrate through. The shaman screams at rage at the people, ensuring that none of them slip away from the battle. It raises up its staff and the bullets start to hit an invisible wall. Sparks could be seen where the bullets impact its magical shield. James watches from the side, realizing that the staff of the shaman is holding the key to its power. James reloads his clock and hefts his machete, taking advantage of the greenskins are distracted and not bothering with him. He then charges into the ranks as James stands over 1.8 meters tall, and he weighs 90 plus kilograms with all of his muscles. He slams into the ranks of greenskins like a quarterback playing football. The flimsy shield wall explodes inwards, and a small green-sized skins unable to match his strength and weighted tumble backwards, and body parts start flying. James hacks and smashes into a center of the formation, forcing his superior height and arm reach advantage against the smaller creatures. The shaman, sensing James's approach, turns and points his staff at him, and he starts to shriek something out. James fires his pistol point-blank at the shaman, invoking a shower of sparks, causing the shaman to flinch. Its concentration broken, James ignores the rest of the greenskins and charges closer to the shaman. Using his long arms, he chops down hard on the shaman's right arm, holding the staff, just as he raises the bone staff up and starts chanting again. A look of shock appears in the shaman's face. It screams in pain as it flails its severed arm in panic, spraying greenish blood all over. The shaman glares at James with hatred and using his left hand, draws out a curved, wicked-looking jagger and stabs towards James. James gave a smile to the shaman and steps back out of its reach. He then lazily raises his clock to its face and pulls the trigger. This is for Carl. With the shaman dead, the rest of the greenskins' morale break, and they skittle away in all directions, shrieking in fright. Yo! Thunder! Someone yelled. Flash! James replied tidily. He slumps down against the stone wall, suddenly feeling all the cuts and bruises on his body. Hey! 
I need a medic over here. Corporal Collins steps over the bodies of the dead greenskins and kneels down beside James. James, you okay? Where you hurt? I'm okay. Tend to call. He's in bad shape. James waves Collins towards Cole's direction. The rest of the rescue team start to surround them, forming a defensive perimeter. Lieutenant Frank kneels next to James, who is laying on a stretcher. Hey, Marine. How you doing? He asks. Hey, boss. James smiles on a high morphine. Feeling great. All right. We're going to get you out of here in no time. Hang in there. Lieutenant Frank got up and went to check on the others. He watches the medic low called into a stretcher and hooks up the plasma drip before two others help carry the stretcher out. The girl, Christine, wrapped up in a thermal blanket, follows closely along, escorted by another two security personnel. Corporal Collins organized the men. We're going to flush these green things out. Lieutenant Franks toads the dead shaman corpse. Once all is cleared, gather everything and the science guys to check them out. Yes, sir, Corporal Collins replies. All right, people, form up. I want Team A and Team B to push into that tunnel. C and D this. Collins yells out instructions as he organizes the men into action. Several hours later, the last denizens of the underground dungeon were wiped out. The teams mapped out the entire dungeon, which luckily wasn't very huge. All the passageways link up to a hall where Christine was held in a flight of stairs was found to lead down to a collapsed tower. Hundreds of green-skinned bodies were carried out by portable heavy lifters and dumped at mass grave. Several of the more-in-one-piece bodies with huge humanoids were carefully packed into body bags and sent back to the eggheads at the lab. Other stuff was also carried out by the teams. Gold and silver coins, precious stones, jewelry, bladed weapons, antique armors, and even mana stones. There were even several bones of various creatures that were packed and transported back to be studied. Lieutenant Frank stood and watched the crew pile all the treasure up inside a tent. He looks at Dr. Sharon, who just arrived at the ruins not long ago, and said, There are probably two to three tons of gold and silver in there. We're rich? Yes, but I'm more curious as to where did these coins come from. Is it an ancient civilization or a current one? Dr. Sharon frowns, her brown hair tied in a severe bun. She stands at 1.5 meters tall, her head not even catching Lieutenant Frank's shoulder, whose height is roughly 1.8 meters. His boyish good looks looks in contrast against each other, like a teacher and a student. Those green things seem to eat anything that isn't their own, and maybe even eats their own kind, as evidenced from the bones we found. She continues, From this cracked femur, where they chewed it from the bone marrow, it looks very human, but there are still some differences from us still. She swaps some images and bones taken from the dungeon in a tablet. There should be more humanoid races out there. We're not alone on this planet after all. End of chapter. Chapter 25. Aftermath. So, we found a total of 2,742 gold coins and 5,491 silver coins. Each gold coin weighs roughly 4 to 4.2 grams, and the silver coins weigh roughly 5 to 5.4 grams. Ford reads the report. That's a total of 11 kilograms of gold and almost 30 kilograms of silver, not counting the weight of the pieces of jewelry. Everyone around the conference table cheered. That's a lot, Chief Matt whistles admirably. Yes, Blake agrees. Exa, please continue. After, he gestures everyone to settle down. 
Right, we also found 43 pieces of jewelry in either gold or silver, 64 pieces of gemstone, dozens of ivory tusks and horns. Paul gave a smile as he heard read from the list. Also, 70 pieces of mana stone were recovered, which we discovered not only blue colors, but also in red, yellow, and green. That's a good haul, QM Chen said. So, we're getting paid, he jokes. Most of all, these minted coins represent civilizations or nations here that has reached the level of technology to produce means capable of mass production of coinage. Blake holds up a gold coin with an image of a tree stamp on the both sides of the coin. This means there's a thriving civilization out there. Sir, but from the weapons and armor we gathered from the greenskins, their weapon technology appears to be around the human bronze iron age. Lieutenant Frank spoke and those green-skins don't look so civilized to me. In fact, they lack the maintenance of their own weapons and armor shows the lacking they are. Could it be that the green-skins civilization is in decline, and they have fallen to their current barbaric state? Grayson raises a point. No, I did an autopsy on them, and the brain scan, Dr. Sharon said. They are all small humanoid in appearance. Everything is very similar to a 10 to 12 year old human child except that they have thicker and tougher skin and a heightened immune system and more efficient organs and digestive systems compared to an adult human. She activates the display showing images of a green skin cut open on the operating table. Okay, that's enough pictures for now. Chief Matt looks disgusted at the image. Almost everyone's faces turns kind of green. Dr. Sharon smiles wickedly before switching the display to show the brain scan data. By the way, their blood is green due to the double copper atoms in their blood. Oxygenation causes color change between copper atoms, hence it turns green. She then highlights the scans and said, On the right side, brain scan of a green skin, while on the left is a human scan. The highlight of parts are where we measure intelligence on how smart a person is. If you look at the human scan, which is of someone with an IQ of 190, and compare it with the scan of the green skin, it's almost identical. Blake raises his eyebrows and he listens to Dr. Sharon's words. Wait, you mean that they're all geniuses? No, not geniuses, like maths prodigy or rocket scientists, but of intelligence, meaning that they are smart, learn fast and adapt fast. Next, she highlighted another section of the scans. This shows the level of aggression active in the brain, which is abnormally high. So, this means that my theory that they are not a declining civilization, but more of their culture as scavengers and cannibals, like some ancient human tribes in the past as we discovered many discarded items, with their own distinct design styles and manufacturing methods. Alright, thank you Dr. Sharon for the report, Blake said, as the rest of the people in the conference start debating amongst themselves. Okay, I got S.A. Christine, who has some experience in archaeology from surveying team, to give us some quick rundown of the ruins. He nods towards the redhead sitting at the side of the room. Christine stood up, dressed in a service dress uniform, and stood before the conference table. The only scars from her adventure were nearly invisible skin-toned plaster on her forehead, hidden by her short bangs. She took over the display controls and starts to display a UAV imagery of the ruins. We discovered these ruins over in the northern section of the base two days ago. After the initial survey, and using ground-penetrating scanners, we managed to map out the whole underground complex. She switches to a 3D display of the tunnels. The underground complex appears to be some sort of storage, 
with living quarters, a hall, a throne room, or office. The upper levels are mostly buildings used for various purposes, like production or even stables. Christine extends the simulated 3D model to display the ground floor structures. We believe this was a fort or an outpost, but it was either abandoned or lost to the Greenskins or some other reason. Do we know how old the ruins are? Blake asks. Yes, we managed to do a simple calculation on the plant growth and the weathering on stone slabs, and found it to be roughly 80 to 100 years old. Also, we dated the coins. They appear to be within the 10 years of circulation, Christine replies. Wait, does this mean they were in some country's territory? Jason asked, or is there some nearby town or cities? Yes, Ford answered. We have thought of that possibility. We stepped up the UAV recon operations, but as we have limited supplies for UAV maintenance, we can only scout so much land. Okay. Thank you, S.A. Christine. Blake dismissed Christine back. Chief Matt, I would like you to ensure our reactor is up and running ASAP. Charge all our capacitors to the max. Grayson, get extra work teams to dig forward guns out and make sure that the laser point defense and missile launchers are up and running. Chief Matt and Grayson nod. Dr. Sharon, I want you to keep finding ways on how to harness the mana stones, but don't blow up the ship. Blake cautioned while Dr. Sharon smiles back. QM Chen, I leave the treasure in your hands. Keep it safe. If we meet a friendly local, we can use it to trade for supplies or any necessities. Work with HR on it too. Also, for the incident with the wolves and the greenskins, we've spent almost 2% of the ammunition stores. We need to find a way to replenish our ammunition or discover new ways of fighting. Lieutenant Frank, I leave the task to you, Blake offered. All right, get to work, people. Dismissed. Aye, aye, Captain. End of chapter. Chapter 26. Ideas. Shortly after the meeting, Blake left his office and entered into the flight deck. The two Boeing super space buses sat locked cradles for as far side of the empty deck. There is little personnel on the flight decks as most of them are assigned to other duties around the base of the ship. Yet, at the corner of the deck, personnel can be seen constantly coming in and out of the workshop. Blake walked into the workshop, waving away the salutes from the crew. Jack Chief Gale... He calls out a ton of racket made by the workshop's fabricators. Captain! A heavy-set, middle-aged man dressed in a pair of dark olive-green work overalls lifts his welding mask upwards from his face. What can I do for you, sir? Senior Chief Petty Officer Gail Tyson places his work tools and masks down. A word, please, Chief. Blake gestures out of the workshop and the Chief Gale walks to the open launch bay overlooking the base colony. I got something I need your help with, Chief. What do you need, Cap? Chief Gale looks out at the pack of cigarettes and offers it to Blake, who declines. He shakes his pack and curses. Damn, soon these things are gonna be worth the weight in gold. I need your team to come up with a design for an all-terrain vehicle. What we can produce with the resources we have, Blake says bluntly. We have no off-road capabilities at all. We need a vehicle capable of ferrying people and a large number of goods over long distances. Chief Gale lit his cigarette and takes a long drag before exhaling out the smoke. We can convert the forklifts to use as a truck, but it will require a massive overhauling of the structure of the vehicle. He takes another smoke before scratching his head. 
No, that'll take too much time and also ruin a perfectly useful vehicle that we will need for a heavy lifting. So how is it? Possible, Blake pressed. Too much manpower being used as porters and half the time surveying team spent just to walk from point A to point B and back. Gale puffs out the smoke before he carefully stubs it out of the half-smoked cigarette. Well, I don't think that I should be too hard. We have all sorts of designs and production templates in the computer. He keeps the cigarette in his pack. Well, I'll get the boys to work on some designs, with the current resources that we can produce. Should take a couple days before we have something. Good, Blake nods. Well, good chance for you to quit smoking, unless you can find tobacco growing here. That's why I'm smoking them slowly, sir, Gale grins. All right, I'll get back to work and get the boys to come up with some designs. He gives a salute before returning to the workshop, boring his people with not stacking off. Come on, Lieutenant, Sergeant Ramon pleads. I'm already busy as it is. He gestures around the armory, where weapon parts laid about over the table. They keep breaking the guns. He graduated from India's Institute of Technology, Bombay completing his bachelor degree in mechanical engineering and firearm design before being drafted into the military. If it wasn't for the war, he was supposed to go start working with a high position in a prestigious company. With his skill set and family connections, after basic military training, he was posted to become a Marine Armory Sergeant on board the UNS Singapore, which was supposed to be a safe from all conflict. He knew that he didn't fit with the rest of the real marines, and he thought of them as lower caste than him. But he manages to keep his armory functioning well enough that Staff Pike cannot fault him at all. And recently, he heard that stuck-up Corporal James found a treasure trove full of gold and silver. Damn, an unlucky jerk. Him, he gets Lieutenant Frank in his armory ordering him around with some ideas to create a new bullet cartridge. Crazy. Sergeant Ramon, I know you are busy, but those work can be delegated to others to do. This, Lieutenant Frank controls his anger. He knows that Ramon rarely leaves the armory to help with other work. He always saying he's busy and finding excuses. He holds up a tablet and shoves it under Ramon's nose. It's crucial for our survival here. Lieutenant, it is not that I don't want to do this, Ramon explains. I just can't make new 6.5mm rounds with what we have here. Then what do you propose? Lieutenant Frank asks. And this rate of ammo consumption will run out in less than a month. Ah, as I said before, we do not have the materials to produce propellant for a 6.5mm round, but we can substitute it with other materials, like black powder or even smokeless if we have the components. Raman came up with some excuses, just that we don't have all the components to produce any. He says that Frank will go away. Wait, black powder? Frank does a quick search of the computer archives. Sulfur, charcoal, and potassium nitrate. But the EM-7A1s can't handle black powder cartridges. The weapon will jam in a few shots due to the fouling of the black powder. Raman explains like he is talking to a three-year-old. So we need to design a new rifle, Frank asks. One that allows to use the black powder. Eh, it's easy to design a new rifle since the computer has tons of templates. The problem is finding potassium nitrate here. Raman gestures at the reloading bench. We just don't have the materials to make anything, so there is nothing I can do. Oh, so? I've heard that we found some treasure. Yeah, just some gold and silver coins. Frank's busy with his tablet, casually answers, missing the look agreed from Raman. 
I want you to come up with a new rifle design, no complaints. He cuts Raven's objections off. I will reassign others to take other weapon maintenance. You just concentrate on rifle design. You have three days. Frank holds up three fingers. No buts. With that, Frank left the armory, leaving Raman with his mouth agape. Crap, Raman curses. Why must I do all the slave work? I am the eldest son of the trade minister of India. Bloody low lives only know how to keep ordering me around. One day, I'll show them who's the real boss. End of chapter. Chapter 27. Ethics. So, Dr. Sharon, what is it that we couldn't discuss at the meeting? Blake stood inside the old laboratory in the civilian section of the ship with Exo Ford in confusion. Well, there are some things to show you first before you decide what to do with the information, Dr. Sharon said as she brings up a display terminal. Look here, this is video footage taken from the Marine's head cam. Dr. Sharon shows the two senior officers. The 1080p HD video recording of the fight inside the ruins plays itself. Lots of camera shake, muzzle flashes, and screaming. Dr. Sharon pauses the video at one point and highlights a portion of the video. Look, you see that flash of light? Both Blake and Ford nod as they watch the video playback. Watch closely, Dr. Sharon says before playing the video. Is that some kind of energy weapon? Blake asks, he and Ford lean closer to take a look. No, Dr. Sharon gestures both officers to the side table. There, a long black crate is sat. She keys in a password at the lock pad and opens up the lid. This is what the green skin was using. A 1.2 meter long spine inscribed with silvery runes all along the vertebra column of the reddish crystal set on top rest on a layer of foam padding. Blake and Ford immediately recognized the crystal as a mana stone. This bone staff uses some kind of creature's backbone as a main structure. The bone is fused together by silver and some other materials. The inscriptions are also very detailed. She shows a magnified image of the characteristics. It is inked mostly in silver and some unknown substance. And of course, we don't know what language it's in. The mana stone at the top is similar to the blue ones we have. The difference is just the color or something that I haven't found yet. Dr. Sharon then plays another video from the camera. If you look here, we managed to capture the sounds the green skin made when he tried to blow the marines away. I managed to get the sounds isolated from all the background noise and chatter. She plays the audio file and a series of harsh sounds play out. It sounds like a kind of chant. From the tone and the pitch of the sounds it made, she plays the video again, showing the green skin chanting and forming a fireball before it flew towards the camera. Why does it feel like magic? Blake looks at Ford, who shrugs. Wait, did you try it? Oh, Blake smiles when he sees Dr. Sharon's face turn red. You did, didn't you? <laughs> did you do the pose like a wizard, or what were those Japanese anime girls called? Magic girls? It's magical girls, Dr. Sharon stomps, and seeing both men laughing there. Okay, now I know why you didn't want to talk about this in the meeting. <laughs> Blake teases while laughing. She angrily elbows Ford hard in the stomach. <clears throat> Why me? But Ford kept on smiling even with his ribs and tummy. Because he's the captain. All right, back to the serious topic. Dr. Sharon tries to steer the conversation back to where it was. Watch this. She plays another video. This time it shows the lab that they were in. 
Dr. Sharon could be seen standing in the middle of the room holding the staff with two hands. She could be heard speaking directly to the camera. Time, 2.44 p.m., date 2113, August 7th. Starting, experiment number 9. The video shows her starting to recite the chant sound by sound. Just as she finishes the last verse, a faint flare from the manor stone and a split second later, Dr. Sharon collapses onto the floor. I was knocked down for 20 minutes, woke up feeling weak and giddy, she explains. When I finished the last verse, I immediately felt tired and lightheaded. Before I knew it, I woke up from the floor. Are you all right? Did you have a checkup on yourself? Blake and Ford looked worried, all traces of merriment gone. Yes, just fatigue and a minor dose of radiation. Nothing serious. She waves off the concern. My theory is, to use it like casting a spell, you will require a certain amount of aptitude or mental strength, which clearly I'm lacking in it. That's why I fainted. Interesting. So if we got an aptitude, the mental strength, the chant, and the mana stone, we can cast fireballs like that. Ford lifts the staff up and examines it. Magic. I will not recommend doing any of that yet until I run more tests. Sharon snatches the staff out of Ford's hands before placing it back into the crate. Okay, for now we keep this quiet, and also do not place yourself in such a dangerous situation, Blake lectured. Keep at least one or two trustworthy assistants to help you. We can't lose you and your skills. Dr. Sharon nods and she turns around and says, Oh yes, the report on that giant humanoid is out too. Pushing past the two officers, she keys in some commands into the console and a new image appears on the screen. I decided to name it a troll since it looks like one. Body composition is very similar to the greenskins, except that its skin is toughness is almost as good as steel. DNA for the troll and the greenskins is almost matched at 99%. They should be from the same family tree but developed differently, like monkeys and apes. She types in more commands. Here is a very interesting thing I found. It has a separate organ which secretes a type of adrenaline that I have never seen before. It actually increases heating cells by a factor of over a thousand times. What? Instant regeneration? Blake and Ford were shocked. What kind of life form is that? I won't say it's instant regeneration, but it is very fast heating. Dr. Sharon explains further. These are the bullet wounds made by the marine before it died. She points at some barely visible puncture wounds on the screen. All these are the wounds made after it died. The bullet entry wounds while the creature was still alive have started to heal and close up, while the wounds made after the creature died did not heal at all. I found the gland to contain traces of a type of chemical that appears to speed up the natural heating of the body, much like our medical nanites. So this creature has a gland inside that looks like some kind of wonder drug that heals all wounds. Blake was seriously amazed. This planet has plenty of valuable resources. Yes, if possible, I would like to harvest these glands from the creatures, preferably alive, Dr. Sharon states. As you know, our stock of biomaterials is very, very low. The medical properties of these creatures can provide us with as biomaterials for critical medical needs. Sir, I would like to raise an issue. Is this ethical? Ford asks. It is a living creature, and with some form of intelligence, are we to farm it for its medical properties like some animal? Ford looks at Blake directly. Is it the right thing to do? End of chapter. Chapter 28 Stalker 
James knocked at the open hatch of the medical bay. Hey, Cole, still alive? He pokes his head in, seeing Cole laying on one of the hospital beds, with a bandage wrapped around his thigh. How are you doing? Hey, Corp, Cole replies weakly. I feel weak. Doc says I lost too much blood. Almost didn't make it. He gives a weak smile. Thanks for saving me. Don't sweat it. Good to see you're better. James pants Cole on the shoulder. Well, get you out of here soon. You owe me a beer. Sure, pardon me. Invite that vetter of yours along too. Cole gave a wink. Come on, you mean Christine and me? James laughs. Nah, she probably has someone else. What someone else? Christine asks from the hatch. What evil plots are you guys planning? Um, no. James quickly replies, his face turning slightly red from embarrassment while Kroll struggles to not laugh. Ugh. Help, don't make me laugh, Cole moans. It hurts. Christine shakes her head. Men, how are you doing, Cole? Better, Doc says a week or so, and I'm good as new. Cole responds. So how did the ruin exploration go? Christine starts to tell the two of them about what they found in the ruins and what the ruins used to be. The trio starts talking about their theories and thoughts about who built a fort and also about the greenskins. Suddenly, a learnt went off from the communication device. After a quick read of the message, both James and Christine look at each other before turning to Cole. We got sent a silent mobilization. Gotta go, see you later. James and Christine dash out of the medical bay, meeting several other crews also rushing to the stations. Halfway, James and Christine split into different directions. Be careful, Christine yells after James, before heading into her assigned location. What do we have? Blake connects his comm to the bridge as the communications flashed a priority alert message. Sir, perimeter sensors are picking up something massive and closing in. Roger that. I'll be on the bridge in five minutes. Blake cut the connection and turns to Dr. Sharon. We continue this discussion later on. For now, any experiments with the staff, do it with at least two assistants. Exiting the lab, he looks at the Exo Ford. Put a couple guards on the guard that thing. It seems dangerous. Yes, sir, Ford replies. Both of them are in hurries towards the bridge. As they enter the bridge, everyone inside the very tents, staring at the main display. What in the world? A UAV hovers 30 meters off the ground, a camera facing a massive wolf as it creeps stealthily through the thick undergrowth towards the base colony. The imagery is directly displayed in the bridge main screen, and it shocks everyone. How big is that thing? Blake walks up and stands in front of the display. Do we have any estimation of its size? Computer simulations gauge it to be 9 meters tall and 18 meters in length, came back the reply. Target has crossed the 5 kilometer mark and closing in. The silvered-backed giant wolf pauses its movement and sniffs the air, looking directly at the hovering UAV. The UAV is coated with a dazzling camouflage pattern designed to blend in with the sky makes less noise than the wings of a hummingbird. The wolf tilts its head. It senses something watching it, but it is unable to see or smell anything. After a while of confusion, it continues its slow crawl towards the base colony. To the crew in the bridge, the way the wolf crawls towards the undergrowth looks hilarious, but judging from its size, it no longer is a laughing matter. Do we have anything to kill it with? Blake asks. How the freck are we going to fight something that size? No, the marines do not have anti-armor weaponry. We are not issued with anything more other than individual weapons. 
Lieutenant Frank, who entered the bridge after Bake and Ford, stares wide-eyed at the screen. Command did not expect us to do any ground combat. Point defense lasers, Blake called for the defense officer. Status. That, sir, we do not have enough power for the PD lasers. Weapons report, missiles are ready, but only launcher one out of eight are clear to be fired. Blake hits the commands and connects to engineering. Chief Map, can we divert all power to weapons? Yes, we can, but it should only be able to give us enough power for one or two shots with PD lasers, before it drains all the power from the capacitors. Chief Matt replies back, and I need some time to reroute the power and charge up the capacitors. Do it, Blake orders before he turns to weapons officer. Open missile bays 1 to 8. Aye aye, opening missiles 1 to 8. The weapons officer punches in some keys and several clanging echoes could be heard in the distance. Missiles 1 to 8 open and ready, sir. All hands, battle stations, this is not a drill. Ford alerted the crew through the comms network. Repeat, this is not a drill. All of the personnel working outside except for the security forces dropped their work and rushed back to the ship. People in the orderly manner lined up at the entrance ports of the cargo ramp, while the flight deck launch bay is already starting to close up. James rushes down the ramp to run towards the concrete bunker built next to the unfinished wall. God damn it, why must there be a situation now? He huffs and he puffs as he runs the distance of over two kilometers. Can't it wait for when I'm not on board the ship? Finally, he reaches the bunker with the words N3 stenciled on the walls, banging on the armored door which was salvaged from the strip. Hey Corp, glad you decided to join us. James sees Mull's grinning face as he enters the bunker. Having fun jogging? Shut up. James thumps against the side bench and pauses to catch his breath. All here? Yep. You're the last, Bills replies, pointing at everybody in the bunker. James sees Private Brantley, giving him a small wave of acknowledgement from the forward firing slits of two other black-clad security members, peering out of the weapons viewports. Corp, so what's the deal? More drills? Mills asks as he settles down one of the firing ports. Wait, I need to download the mission data. James pulls out his tablet and starts checking the mission brief. Mm-hmm. What the hell? Mills, come here. Mills, wondering what the fuss was all about, he leans over to look at the tablet, which James is holding up to him. Yeah, holy freck! Mills yells, causing everyone in the bunker to gather around to view the mission data. Is this a joke? One of the security guys asks. A nine meter tall wolf. No oh boy, I'm screwed. Mommy is here for the kids that I killed. Mills groans. Wait. Big guy, you killed more wolves than me, he points at Bartley, who just shrugs his shoulders. Enough, Mills, stop whining. James kept the tablet and looked at the room of frightened soldiers, except for Bartley, whose expression doesn't seem to change. Question now is, how the hell do we kill that thing? End of chapter. Chapter 29. All Along the Watchtower. Power has been rerouted to the point defense lasers, capacitors charging at 0.3% and rising. Get those people in the ship now, just ignore it. Shut the side hatches, make sure that all is locked down. Chaos and panic reign in the bridge. Crews and the stations frantically give orders and directions to the men and women still evacuating back to the ship. Blake stood in the middle, staring at the image of the Alpha Wolf. 
Sir, Ford came up next to Blake. 85% of the crew are accounted for. The remainder are surveying teams in the south and southeast sections. Inform them to lay low and be on alert, Blake orders. Once the all-clear is given, then get them to return back. Weapons, how much more time do we have before the lasers are ready, Blake asks. Sir, as long as the capacitors reach 0.4 strength, we can fire, came back the reply. Blake turns back to the screen, watching the wolf creeping its way forward. Captain, sensors are picking up more movement. The sensors, Sir Randy reports, moving UAV to expand area view. The UAV observes the approaching danger under the control of Randy, and he drifts high upwards and the video was transmitted back to the bridge. Dozens of bluish-gray shapes follow behind the Alpha Wolf. Their bluish-gray fur blends in perfectly with the undergrowth as they appear and disappear from view. Contacts just cross the two-kilometer mark. Weapons, Blake asks without turning from the screen. Capacitors holding at 0.7%. That's all the power we're getting from the WTS generators. Weapons reports. The WTS generators are three-in-one power generators, powered by wind, tidal, and solar energy. All hatches secured, and the ship is secured, sir, Ford informs Blake. Other than our away teams and the perimeter defense teams, all crew is on board and accounted for. Weapons launch Missile 1 directly at the front of the Alpha as a warning shot. Blake orders, as we can make them retreat, that would be the best case scenario, he thinks. Aye, Missile 1 firing. The weapons officer hits the launch key, and a slight tremor could be felt as the missile was ejected out of the launch bay before igniting its engines and darts off towards the impact area. A flash of light and a small dirt cloud explodes upwards over a kilometer away. The UAV wobbles and readjusts itself as the shockwave from the blast threatens to knock it out the sky. The view switches to infrared and thermal as the cloud of dirt and smoke blocks the view, before switching back to normal vision. Where did it go? Infra and thermal shows nothing except for the missile impact area. Everyone's eyes were on the screen watching, hoping that the missile managed to scare away the wolves. The smoke clears and a small crater is formed where the missile was hit. The Alpha Wolf has retreated back and glares at the ground in confusion, wondering where the attack came from. It narrows its eyes and throws its head back and howls, before turning and running away with the rest of the wolves. Contacts are leaving, Andy excitedly reports. They just left the five-kilometer mark. They're out of our sense of range. Stand down, people, Blake orders. Good work, everyone. Blake gestures to Ford to follow him, and he left the bridge and enters his office. We need to be able to fend off those wolves. Emperor and Thermal have no effect on them. If we can't lock on missiles means we can't hit them. Sir, we will also need to replan the perimeter wall. Ford rubs his chin. Currently, the plans for the wall is set to a height of 12 meters, but the Zalfa wolf changes a lot of things. We need a reactor to be ready, Blake sat in his chair and sighs. Without power, we can't fire the lasers and that is currently our only trump card. Ford nods. I'll push Matt harder before leaving his office. Four hours later, the wolves return. They came to a distance of two kilometers before Blake orders another missile fired. This time to kill. The missile fired and guided manually only manages to scare the wolves away without killing the wounding any. When night came, the wolves attempted an approach again, only to be driven back by another missile. Throughout the whole night, the wolves constantly probed the lions, trying to sneak closer to the base colony. 
Did you manage to get any sleep? Blake asked Ford, yawning. How many times did they come? Five, six? Six times, sir, Ford replies. He held up two cups of coffee in his hands, one over to Blake. I managed to nap a bit. Well, at least we didn't waste all those missiles. At least two confirmed kills and two wounded. Blake sips on a hot drink. But at this rate, we will run out of missiles before they run out of bodies. Chief Matt is rushing his team non-stop to fix the reactor. Ford sets down his cup of coffee on the table. He says he needs more time, which we do not have. Well, at least the capacitors are over 10%. We can switch the lasers instead of using missiles now, Blake informs Ford. The wolves are very intelligent. They appear to be probing our defenses and are trying to find a weak spot. Yes, I gather that they are trying to weaken us by doing this constant raids, Ford frowns. It's like they're stalking us as prey. Down in the bunkers, James and his team rotated duties inside. Some will be on watch while others resting. Throughout the day and the night, the alerts keep popping up, making them scramble to stand ready at firing ports. The concrete bunker is built with a tower built upon top of a basement barracks for the soldiers to rest and store supplies. Most of the team looks tired and fatigued, except for Bartley, who managed to snore for two, while the rest attempted to fall asleep but couldn't. Corp, what are they doing? Moles rubbed his eyes and yawned. Why are they not attacking? I don't know, James blinks his tired eyes. He was too hyped up to fall asleep last night. Maybe they're testing us. Wish they'd stop doing that, Mills grumbled, as he opened the packed meal delivered from the mess earlier. Ugh, more purple karata mash. He spoons some out and swallows it. And we'll start an attack so that we can eat you after we kill you. He shouts towards the forest and a firing port. James smiles tiredly. He reaches for one of the packed meals when the perimeter alert beeps madly. Action stations. End of chapter. Chapter 30. Clash of Giants. Over ten wolves ranged from the size of a car to a bus rushed headlong towards the forest and burst out of the foliage, appearing in three hundred meter strip of cleared land between the trees and the base's perimeter. Snarls and growls accompanied the creatures as they sprint against the open ground. Fire! James yells as the lead wolf passes the two hundred meter mark. Traces erupt from his bunker, soon followed by the rest as they open fire too. The glow of the crisscross tracer lights up the new dawn and the day while howls of gunfire scattered the creatures from the forest. Watch your fire and aim before you shoot, James peeks out from the bunker while directing his men's fire. Don't waste ammo. Suddenly a huge shadow covers the left side of the port openings and the whole bunker shook with a loud thud. A piercing whine could be heard as a wolf broke its paw against the hardened concrete, when it tried to smash away with its paws. It couldn't understand why it was so tough. It used to be able to sweep the stone and wooden buildings away from two legs. It whimpers and pain and tries to limp away. Hello, my dinner. Come to Papa. Mills hollers as he fires full auto into the retreating wolf who hit the bunker, making its head hurt. The impact of his bullets pounded the creature's organs to jelly, causing it to vomit blood before it collapses with an earth-shaking smash. Whoa! Fresh meat tonight! James shakes his head at Mills' antics and climbs up the ladder to reach the tower top. 
At three levels of climbing, he emerges from the ladder to the spacious square room of the tiny rectangular viewports, giving him a panoramic view of the surroundings. The two security crew members were stationed here, were firing carefully downwards at the attacking walls. How is everything? James asks as he stood on the firing step and looks out at the surroundings. The sun has started to appear and is casting a long shadow over the ground while tracers flew haphazardly towards the fast-moving wolves. Doing fine, Corporal, they replied excitedly, their fear overtaken by the adrenaline rush and success of the kills. They can't get to us. Good. Watch your fire and hammer, James advised. Make every shot count. Most of the walls had fallen while some others surrounded the bunker, trying to gnaw at the troops inside. Several walls ignored the bunkers and rampaged around the temporary built structures of the base's colony. He watches as the wall size of a truck tramples the surviving domes, tearing its tough fabric before getting fired upon by the nearest bunker. It dodges and howls, but under the heavy gunfire topples over and crashes into the abandoned forklift from the side of the road. James checks his tablet and finds out what the wolves have split into two groups of over twenty each, and are attacking in two different directions. Damn, these guys are smart, but so far, other than a few damaged equipment and buildings, he managed to hold the line, unless the monstrous wolf comes into play. Sensing that the attack had failed, the alpha wolf howls and the remaining wolves turn tail and retreat, leaving behind a dozen dead and dying. It glares from a soft cover of the forest, staring with hatred at the base colony before it turns and retreats with a brood to lick its wounds. Sir, contacts retreating out of motion sensor range. Send a UAV after them. See if we can follow them back to the lair this time. The last few attempts did not bear fruit as the UAV infra and thermal sensors couldn't pick them out of the night. Blake turns and asks forward, Any casualties? No, sir. Other than some shaken nerves, we survived this attack. Ford reports after he checks the very department, but we depleted quite a lot of our ammunition stores. Let the crews out and bring the bodies, make it quick. I got a feeling that they just fell back to regroup and attacking again. Blake orders. Also, stop rerouting power to the laser capacitors. Restore power to the rest of the ship and base. He wipes the sweat off his face. As the temperature had steadily risen up in the bridge throughout the night due to the air conditioners having no power. He couldn't imagine what the rest of the crew inside the ship were facing, even with the vents open. The cargo bay ram slid out as a massive armored doors cranked open. A couple of forklift drivers down the ramp and headed towards the bodies of the wolves lying all over the base. Dozens of crew members cling to the sides of the vehicles as they reach a ride and begin to clean up the area. Wills watches the work crews hook and tow the wolf carcasses away. Fresh meat tonight, he rubs his gloved hands with glee. Ham, I'm hungry. I want a nice juicy medium rare steak. All the soldiers stationed in Bunker H3 have climbed onto the tower and were watching the work crews cleaning up the battlefield. Think the wolves had enough? Will they be back? Asked one of the security guys. How if I know, Wills pats his rifle stock. If they come again, we just feed them 6.5 millimeters while they feed my tummy. He laughs at his own joke. And someone was almost crying for his mommy on the other day. James couldn't help but make fun of him, making the rest laugh along. James is very glad that his team's morale has risen, and he asks Bartley, You're alright? Yes, Corp, Bartley replies in his usual dull tone. 
Just sad for those creatures. They look so noble. Noble, or not, James pats Bartley on the shoulder. They still try to kill us. We do what we have to to protect everyone here. That we do, Bartley whispers. The clash of giants. The wolves did not return later that day, nor the following weeks ahead. End of chapter. Chapter 31. Wheels. Blake sat in his office chair and went through all the reports sitting on his work desk. Food and water supplies, ammunition consumption, crew morale and more. Luckily, the giant horned wolves donated over four tons of meat, helping them greatly with their food supplies. How am I going to solve the ammunition problem? Over 30% used up in the defense against the wolves. If they attack constantly, they will be down to sticks and stones. Blake held up Lieutenant Frank's report to skim through it. Black powder. Hmm. We need a saltpeter source if we need potassium nitrate. Blake makes a reminder to get a survey teams to head down south along the cliff and the hills to see if they can find any bat caves. The senior Chief Petty Officer Gale knocks sharply on the open hatch of Blake's office. Permission to enter, sir? He stood at parade rest outside of the office. Come in, Chief. Blake glances up from the stack of paperwork, glad for the interruption. He pushes back in his seat, thinking even if he stranded on an unknown planet, trying to survive. Yet, paperwork never dies. At ease, Chief, and take a seat. Chief Gale pulls the chair out and sat down heavily before handing over a tablet to Blake. Sir, the vehicle designs are done. Oh, that's fast. Blake raised an eyebrows as he scrolls through the designs. Yes, sir, the past two days due to the wolf raids, we were mostly on lockdown, so the lads had plenty of free time to come up with something. Chief Gale explains. We also built a couple prototypes to test. What, really? Blake's eyes light up. Can I see them? Sure you can, sir and they set off towards the flight decks. Along the way, Chief Gale explains the designs that they came out with to Blake. This way, Chief Gale leads the Blake to the makeshift garage housed inside the flight deck. We built this garage so that it was easier for us to create and test the vehicles. Sitting in the middle of the garage were two vehicles with several mechanics working on them. Captain on the deck! Chief Gale bellows. The mechanics instantly stopped the work and stood to attention. At ease, Blake enters the garage and looks with approval at the two vehicles sitting there. One is a four-wheeler, while the other is a half-track design, both still looking very bare-bones, with cables and gears exposed. Chief Gale points to the four-wheeler and points to the characteristics. We took an old chief design, as it was the simplest build that we had with what we have. It is powered by an overclocked 50-kilowatt electric motor salvaged from the auto doors, providing 67 horsepower. The four-wheeler has no doors, just a simple car body frame with a driver's seat, a front passenger seat and a bench to bolt the back for two more passengers. Of course, since the terrain here has no proper roads, it has four-wheel drive capabilities. Able to hit speeds of up to 110 kilometers per hour with a max load of 450 kilograms and a range of 520 kilometers on a full battery charge. Tested. Blake sat on the driver's seat, holding onto the steering wheel. He looks so primitive, design at the steering wheel, gearbox and foot pedals. How do you drive this thing? Chief Gale gives a brief run-through of how the steering works, gearbox and foot pedals work. 
This turns the direction of the vehicle, while this controls the speed, and this is the accelerator, brakes, and clutch. After 30 minutes of explanation and learning, Blake turns the power key on and steps gently on the accelerator. The jeep rolls forward smoothly and exits the garage to the joy and excitement of the mechanics. Blake drove several rounds inside the flight deck before returning to the garage. That was fun, he grins at the excited mechanics in Chief Gale. Very good work. Now we just need to get some outfield trials. What's next? This is the half-track design we came up with. We actually wanted to use eight wheels to give it a good off-road capabilities, but we're kind of lacking in rubber. Chief Gale pats the steel hull and half-track. For all the engines, we pulled several large electric motors off the blastals. The 200 kilowatt motors provide as much as 260 horsepower, allowing it to transport over two tons of load while keeping the top speed at 78 kilometers an hour. The half-track looks like the flatbed trailer truck with two front wheels, while the rear has a caterpillar track instead of having wheels. For its max range, the batteries are also good for roughly 480 kilometers on a full charge. Why half-track? Blake asks, curious. Shouldn't a four or six wheels at the rear be better? A few points, sir. One is due to the placement of the tracks. It spread the vehicle weight over a larger area, which gives it a greater mobility over soft terrain like mud and snow. Chief Gale ticks off his fingers and continues, relying instead on their front wheels to direct the vehicle. They do not require a complex steering mechanism to fully tracked vehicles. Next, it's easier to learn to operate than a fully tracked vehicle. Last of all, rubber. We do not have enough of it to produce enough tires for all the vehicles, thus we opted for tracks, using a modular steel plates where we have plenty of steel. Blake nods and before asking, How long do you need to finish it up before starting trial runs? Blake stands next to the half-track. And how many can you build and how fast? The jeep is almost done, just needs some finishing touches. Chief Gale rubs his chin as he mentally makes some calculations. Probably can squeeze out two jeeps per week. As for the half-track, one per week or up to ten days to produce it. Also, same as the jeep, the rubber is lacking unless we change all tracks like a tank. Chief Gale looked at Blake. Including the needs of rubber for the jeeps, I'd say 12 jeeps and 20 half-tracks is all we can produce. Blake nods. Once the survey teams have jeeps, they can expand and find more resources easier. Alright, that sounds good. Quickly finish the prototypes and run trials. Once all is tested and run fine, I want production of the jeep and half-track to begin. Yes, sir. Also, if you can assign people to start stripping the ship of rubber and other parts, it would help a lot, Chief Gale gave a suggestion. Got it. I'll assign people to work on it. Blake agrees and continues. We also need a manual for the maintenance and driving. Start giving some of your guys who know how to drive it to be prepared to teach others. End of chapter. Chapter 32. The Empire. A pair of huge, massive doors with carved scenes of trees and nature swings open and a tall, slim, pale-looking male, dressed in a black coat with dark red pants, silk-like high-collared shirt, the cravat tied in a soft bow, covered over the black waistcoat, walks through. His green eyes barely register the two guards bowing to him by the doors. A pair of golden earrings hung from his long, pointy ears. His long, handsome, angular face framed by the light of blonde hair and a thick sideburn frowns in a worry as he carried his steps towards His Majesty's day office. 
Another pair of guards in four-plate mail are holding halberds, bows, and opens the office doors as he approaches. As he enters the room, he bows low to the person sitting behind the golden desk. His Majesty Varrican Bluewoods, ruler of the Bluewoods Empire. Your Majesty, I await your command. His half kneels on the floor in front of the desk with his head bowed low, waiting for the Emperor Varrican to notice him. The Emperor, ignored his presence, continues to read the rolls of parchment with the colored ribbons. His signature, blue hair with a thick beard and only belongs to royalty, are tied with a dark blue ribbon into a ponytail. Having started to show the signs of silver, dressed in a white shirt, waistcoat, blue dark pants, and a knee-high leather boots, he finally sits down the scroll. Emperor Varison sighs, his aging face still retains some handsome features, even turning sixty this year. Raise my lordstrom. He leans back in his padded chair, finely carved with trees and flowers. You disappoint me greatly. Lord Strum stood resisting the urge to wipe the sweat from his face. My emperor, I have failed you to repel the scum that still walks the land. My troops are so close to wiping them out, but the greenskins raided in massive numbers. Thus, I had to fall back my troops and block the tide of greenskins, he explains. Yes, yes. I read your report and the commander's report too. Emperor Varison waves his way his explanation. Still, your incompetence has allowed the rebels to escape. Varison tilts his head slightly, looking at the strum like the wolf looks at a rabbit. Maybe you don't want your title of Duke of Fallowfall anymore. No, my liege. I won't fail you again. Lord Strum falls to his knees. You sure? I got many other nobles queuing up to be a duke. Barrison smiles wickedly, enjoying tormenting Strum. I think I should just reward some other noble. My emperor, I won't fail you again two months. Oh, one month's time. I'll root out the rebels of Fellow Fall, and they will no longer plague the Emperor Bluewood any longer. Make it so, or it wouldn't just be your title. Emperor Varrison promises. Your head might roll too. Yes, my lord. Lord Strum trembles slightly with fear. He knows quite well how mad Emperor Varison can be. I'll send the third lancers to you to help wipe the rebels out once and for all. Do not fail me this time, the Emperor Varison said as he waves his hand to dismiss Strum. The massive door slams shut behind Lord Strum. He shivers slightly, even with his warm coat, and turns to look at the massive castle battlements, and the towers linked together by bridges and spires rising up into the sky, topped with a fluttering royal blue trimmed with gold banners. Bring my carriage over, he yells to his footman. Hurry up, fools, or I'll whip your hide off your backs. Damn the slaves and rebels, I will find you, and when I do, you will wish that you were never born into this world. His crotch grew hard at the thought of it as he laughs in anticipation. Where's my carriage? Food! 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 The crowd queued up in a line chanted at the ship's galley. Food! 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 And banging their trays and utensils in rhythm to the chanting. Shut up, you punks! The serving mate hoists a large stainless steel pot in the serving line. Like you guys haven't eaten in months. The crowd cheers as they see the steaming pot and starts to hand trays over to the server to put food into their food trays. Mashed carato and some greens with slices of tomatoes. 
a few local fruits and a finely and the main course. Wolf stew. Chunks of wolf meat with potatoes from the farms and local onions accompanied by a large piece of freshly baked bread. Petty Officer, First Class Kyoto Nagasaki, chef of the UNS Singapore, leans over the counter and watches the crowd going wild over his cooking. He shakes his head and smiles, enjoying the mood. He always enjoyed his cooking, taking a diploma in culinary before being drafted into the Navy. He did not expect to be dropped onto an unknown world, but to him, it was like those light novels that he used to read in the past, about reincarnations or transported to another world kind of setting. Due to limited supplies, he has to manage the kitchens and stretch the food supplies to feed over 400 people every day. Luckily, the surveying teams often bring the local wildlife or edible foodstuffs to be checked for health issues, will always come to find him to prepare them. Chief Kyoto was amazed by the different types of materials that he had to work on, of all of them the new to everyone. Thus, he has to create new dishes to cater to everyone's tastes. It was challenging and exciting to him. He felt it truly alive at the first point as his skills are tested to the max. He returns to the kitchen and took out a piece of flat, greenish, transparent-looking squid-like object. The surveying team brought it back for the plains of the east, and it actually looked like a ball of slime. No, it definitely is slime. After several cooking tests and tasting, he found the best way to cook it and serve it. Days before, he removed the internal organs and left it to totally dry out in the sun. Once dried, it shrinks and turns into hard like a dried fish or octopus. He then boils it with salt water, made of soup stock, and bones of the wolves slowly boiled over twenty hours, till the stoop turns whitish. Once the dried slime is boiled, he slices it into noodle-like strips paired with the wolf bone soup, tops it off with an atsuzuki tamaga or a Japanese marinated soft-boiled eggs and some roasted sesame seeds and seaweed, and it's done. Slime ramen. Time to serve the officers their meal as he prepares several bowls of it, whistling along the way. End of chapter Chapter 33 Fugitives Shireen Goldrose bends over with her hands on her knees and takes a breather, pushing her falling hair back over her pointy ears. She stood up and watches the snaking line of people slowly climbing up the steep slopes of the Sawtooth Mountain. Young and old, carrying what little possessions they have, struggles against the rocky terrain and trying to escape the pursuing Empire soldiers. My lady, a middle-aged male with sharp eyes and hair turning grey at the roots, hands a skin of water to Shireen. We must hurry, the Empire soldiers will soon be upon us. We have no time to rest. He wears a half-plate with a long sword belted to his waist in addition to a backpack of supplies. But the people are tired. We can't just push them too much, Shireen pleads with the veteran. We can't let them be taken by the Empire. He sighs. Joseph Token has served a Gold Rose family for over thirty years. He knew the young princess since she was a baby and her temperament very well. But she was also the only last surviving member of the Gold Rose royal family. Her parents, brothers, and ultimately the kingdom lost their lives to the mad Emperor Varrican in the war. He has to protect her at all costs. My lady, I will dispatch men as a rear guard to buy us as much time as possible. He sighs inwardly, thinking of the men and women that he will be condemning to death. But we must hurry. 
Please get on the wagon. He dictates a wagon pulled by a large lumbering land dragon. Shireen looks into the loyal retainer's eye, seeing the sadness and pain inside. I, I understand, but no, let the old wounded and young in it. She stubbornly lowers her head and starts walking again, ignoring her painful sore feet. Joseph shakes his head and waves a flag bearer to come over and give some orders. The flag bearer nods and starts waving his flags and a signal. Shortly after, a small detachment of escorting soldiers broke off and headed to the rear of the column. My lady will soon reach the pass between the Sawtooth Mountains and be able to see the sea. My men will remain to defend the pass. They will not be able to follow us as long as we hold the pass. But you can't hold it forever. Shireen looks worriedly at Joseph since she could remember. He was always there for her. As a mentor in the sword and archery, her protector and friend, she doesn't know that what she will do if she lost him too. Don't worry, my princess, he smiles. When winter comes in two months' time, the pass will be blocked, giving us a whole season to prepare. You need to lead the people and rebuild their homes. Leave the fighting to me. He pats his breastplate. Look, princess, the soldier in the front yells excited and points at the front. A narrow gap slowly comes into view, large enough for four land dragon wagons to drive past side by side. It's the Sawtooth Pass. The deposed citizens of the Gold Rose Kingdom cheer up visibly as they point the pass, knowing that once they cross it, they are saved. Shireen hurries along with the rest of the soldiers and civilians appearing out of the pass and seeing the glittering sea in the distance. It was the first time most of the people had seen the sea, as their kingdom is landlocked. The sparkling clear blue waters could be seen clearly from their height. Suddenly, someone shouted and points to the distance. Joseph and Shireen, worried that the pursuit from the Empire has come, looks in surprise at the object moving in its plains. Two dragonless wagons were moving rapidly in the plains following a herd of pico-picos, a large-sized flightless bird, seemingly capturing them with ropes. What powerful sorcery is that? Joseph stares wide-eyed at the fast-moving wagons. They must be very powerful mages to do that. The people of the Gold Rose Kingdom stood watching the scenery and the dragonless wagons rounding up the herd of pico-picos in awe, when suddenly a horn blast bellowed from the rear. The Empire is here. Loaded up and moving on, the jeep was newly manufactured. Private Drake sat at the rear cheering the crew who was strapped standing in the middle of the jeep. The redesign of the prototype jeep had added a standing place in the middle of the vehicle, which holds a mount of the PK-299 machine gun and a new roll bars the vehicle's sides. The crew made through a lasso had expertly caught another of the large ostrich-like bergs. Hee-haw! S.A. Puller draws the titan noose. God damn, I'm good! All that time spent at Grandpa in the horse farm sure did pay off. At one side of the plains, the second jeep sat and rested the survey team, husbanding the court birds. Lucky they are quite docile, or I think they ate you by now. Sergeant Collins jokes with the team. The large birds stand almost as tall as a human, with an eagle-like head and a body covered with grey-white feathers, while their tail feathers are black with their crane-like legs. Its surrounding eye sockets are the color in bright red-orange, with distinct black feathers protruding from behind its head. Suddenly, a long, bellowing sound of a horn echoes down the mountain onto the plains. 
Everyone snaps their head up towards the sound. What is that? Look, people! Somebody yells in the second vehicle. Sergeant Collins unstraps his binoculars and peers into the distance. The powerful 12 times zoom instantly brings up details of a group of people standing on the mountain slopes. Oh my, we got natives! Collins yells as he focuses his sight of the group. Call car one back, another blast along the mournful sounding horn echoes. Damn. Car two pulled up beside them as we caught the Pico Pico in tow. What the hell is that, Sarge? Private Drake hops off the rear of his wagon and at the ready. He carried the M7 DMR instead of the M7A1 for this mission. There you see a gap between the mountain ridges, Collins directed at Drake, who deployed the built-in bipod of the M7 DMR onto the hood of the jeep. The peers onto the 8x scope of the rifle. You see them? Drake adjusted his sights and activated the built-in rangefinder. Yep, a large group of people, some wearing armor and carrying swords and spears, distance 426 meters away. What's happening? The rest of the team asked who's who were health glasses. Some group of people turned up. Wait, they appear to be fighting. Someone gave a commentary of the situation. Oh no, there seems to be women and children in that group. End of chapter. Chapter 34. Help. Captain Dog5 is requesting instructions. Ensign Clara sat on her console waiting for Blake's reply. Do we render help? Blake frowns as he looks at the tactical map on the area. A large number of unknown natives had appeared over the mountains. Estimates number between around 2,000. He looks at the UAV imagery, showing a group of soldiers in eye-catching gold fending off another group of soldiers in blue while trying to buy time for the people to retreat. Sir, Ford looks at Blake, I advise we help them. There's women, children and elderly in that group. He zooms in the image at the running people. Even with a top-down image, clearly shows children and elderly amongst them. Blake looks around the bridge, seeing everyone looking with him in anticipation. He noticed some of the female crew having tears in their eyes from watching these people getting butchered. All right, do it. Tell Dog Five to provide aid as much as possible, but do not endanger themselves. Deploy the rapid responders. Yes, sir. The bridge crew, hearing his orders, jumped into it with fervor. Ford nods at Blake and smiles. Sir, helping them will boost crew morale. Blake nods, but he wonders if helping these people will bring a calamity in the future. Shireen shouts encouragement to her people, pushing them to move faster and into the safety of the past. Soldiers and civilians alike work hard to roll stones and boulders to create a choke point against the Empire soldiers. She sees the rear guard doing their best to stop the Empire soldiers from advancing and losing their lives for it. It's the Empire's third lancers, a soldier yells. Joseph looks at the banners, three red slashes of dark blue background, carried on the backs of the dragon ride lancers. The dragons look like large Terran crocodiles, with a longer neck and legs, while the snout was shorter. Damn, I don't have much dragon lancers to stop them. Joseph orders his soldiers carrying the dragon lances, which is basically a lance magically enhanced with anti-dragon properties, enabling it to pierce the tough scales and hide the dragon. It's one-time use weapon, as a piercing in its target, the magic inside will detonate, killing the dragon. Lord General! A soldier rushes up to him and salutes, fist over chest. 
The magical wagons are coming our way. What? Joseph turns his attention away from the rear and pushes through the crowd to the front. He looks down the slope and sees the two wagons making their way up the slope. What kind of magic is indeed to, to do that? He looks in an amazement. Shireen quickly joins Joseph as the crowd parts away above the approaching magic wagons. As they approached nearer, she could make out the features of the people driving it. Most of them were in a grey or black clothing and covers most of their bodies. While some were wearing a helmet of some sort, the rest were wearing some sort of hats. The wagon stopped several meters away from the soldiers who formed a defensive line in front of Shireen and Joseph. She pushes the men away and stood in front of them, saying, "'Greetings! I am Princess Shireen Goldrose. We greet you, strangers!' Collins signals to the driver to stop and watches a very, very pretty lady walk out from behind the armored-plated soldiers dressed in gold. Pointing at the spears at them, he drops his jaw in amazement and is stunned for a while. In fact, the whole team is stunned by her looks. They look human, except for the color of her hair and ears. <coughs> the lady spoke something and gave a curtsy of sorts. Her beauty was incredible, with a top-model body, a heart-shaped face, and large blue eyes. Everything was perfect. Collins scratched his forehead and looked around. Anyone speaks alien? Elves, Drake half shouted, his mouth open wide. I can't freaking believe it, it's freaking elves. Being a gamer, he recognized the distinctive features there were so familiar that some of the gamers he played before. Private Drake... You know how to speak, Alf? Collins turned around to ask. If not, what's your language? Am, Collins cursed. How are we going to do this? Ugh, I just smoke my way through. He leaps through the jeep and removes his helmet, and he held up his hands to show this came in peace. Um, we're here to help. Can you understand? The lady tilts her head in confusion to his words before speaking in a flowery language to a tough-looking veteran soldier beside her. What kind of people are they? They look like us, but their ears are so short. Shireen turns to Joseph. Are they enemies? She looks at the men dressed in weird green-brown colored pattern. I don't think so. He is standing there with his hands purposely held to his sides to show he is unarmed. Besides, if they have the magic to power those wackens, I don't think we can stop their magic from killing us all here. Joseph thought. Collins points to the rear and tries to sign that they are here to help. He waves the rest of the vehicles and walks slowly through the pass. The surrounding soldiers nervously point their spears and swords at Collins's approach. He turns to look at the lady and gestures again to the rear urgently. Joseph, I think they mean to help us. Shireen pulls Joseph's arm. They're trying to get to the rear. Joseph frowns. He couldn't be sure what these people are or why they're wanting to go to the rear where the battle was. Are they friend or foe? Should he chance it? Finally, he sighs. Let them pass. I think that they meant to help us. He orders his troops to lay down their weapons. Colin, seeing the old veteran gesturing and speaking, following the soldiers lowering their weapons, he knew that they had given him the green light to pass through. Come on, you pukes. People are dying and we're not the ones doing the killing. His team of seven follows him swiftly through the pass, accompanied by an old veteran and some soldiers. He noticed that the lady was following behind them too. He wondered who she was. 
As they exited the pass, they saw a battle raging on. Scores of civilians were still fleeing and trying to climb towards the pass. Some of the unlucky ones slump and roll down the steep slopes. All right, we're going to hit them with the flanks, Drake said. You snipe. Engage all officers or what you think are officers. Collins and orders came from the rest of the men formed up on the sides, armed with 5mm PDWs. Ignore the big lizards, like things. Kill the riders. They advanced down the stone path, waving and fleeing civilians out of the way. The soldiers in the gold were holding a shield wall to stop the enemy at the bend of the path, denying the dragon cavalry a distance to charge through. Watch your front, don't hit any of the golden boys or civilians. Aim for the blue coats. Ready? The sounds of weapons cocking replied back. Fire. End of chapter. Chapter 35. Mighty Magic. Every infantry to the front, destroy that shield wall. Captain Yoles of the Empire's third lancer commanded, riding on his war dragon. Lancers are to pull back fifty paces. Once the infantry breaks the shield wall, we charge. Cries of acknowledgement replies the commands. He observes the battle, savoring the smell of blood and enjoying the cries of fear. These damned, defeated, gold-rose soldiers fight well for a destroyed kingdom. But too bad. They met me and my third lancers. Yol smiles and yells over the battle. We are the third elite of the Empire. Drop your weapons and surrender, or we will kill every single one of you. And we make slaves out of you all. He smiles inwardly at the thought. The golden shield wall quivers slightly upon hearing his words, and for a moment both sides stay at a standstill. Night Captain Joel smiles, knowing that the enemy Morel has dropped. He raises his fist upwards, ready to command as he's formed up lances to charge into the shield wall. Even with such a short distance, they will still be enough to cause enough chaos to break the wall. Fire! The thunder and fire suddenly erupted from the rear corner of the rose-gold line. Yolls jerked his head in surprise as the war dragon suddenly flinched from the loud sounds. He struggles to keep his mount from panicking and getting it back under control. Private Drake lays prone on the pass and several of the golden boys watching him, wondering what he's up to, laying there, taking a rest while everyone is fighting. He ignores their stares and whispers, carefully setting up his bipod firmly onto the rock floor. He scans through the scope looking at the targets. He almost immediately spots a fully armored soldier in blue, with a red plume on his helmet and a sea of grey armors. He smiles and checks the distance. 237 meters. And zeroes his scope in. He places the crosshair over the target's triangle, which is formed the shoulders to the navel of the body, forming a triangle. Rather than going for a fancy headshot, he calms down and slows his breathing, keeping his cheeks snuggled tight against the rifle stock and gently squeezing the trigger. Captain Nyols finally manages to keep control of his war dragon. He glares at the gold rose lines and raises his fist to strike it down. Charge! For the imp! A 6.5mm tungsten core armored-piercing round traveling at 1,005 meters per second took less than a split second to travel the short distance before punching through the plate mail's torso, 
and into the leather under armor, before entering the Captain Yol's chest. The armor-piercing bullet spiraled deep into the body, rupturing organs and shattering bones, before exiting out of his armpit. The tearing out huge chunks of tissue, exiting his armor at an angle before penetrating through the unlucky heavy-armored soldier nearby, sending him crashing down. One, Drake whispers as he sweeps for other targets. In the name of the gods! Shireen and Joseph stood stunned behind the strangers who wield mighty magical thunder sticks. With each boom of thunder, fire spits out of the enemy drops, sometimes more than one. It does not seem to even care how heavily armored the soldiers are. It cuts them down like wheat. What kind of magic is that? Is it as powerful as a level 5 spell? Maybe even more, Shireen exclaims, shocked at how powerful the strangers are. The rest of the Gold Rose soldiers and civilians watch in amazement at the eight strangers cutting down the enemy over fifty times their size. Sergeant Collins and his team advance in a tactical wedge formation, firing aimed shots into the mass of blue infantry and cavalry. As only he and Drake are marines who use the M7 series, the rest of the team are mostly naval crew and two others from the security section. They are armed instead with the fully automatic 50 rounds, the H&K AMP-11 personal defense weapon firing 5mm full metal jacket rounds. They swept into the ranks of tightly packed soldiers, mowing them down in twos and threes. The 5mm FMJ rounds rip easily through the ranks of the soldier like paper. Shields or plate mail that can stop a spear, sword or arrow are nothing compared to its power. The Empire soldiers cluster even tighter together in confusion, which makes them easier targets. The blue coats, seeing death coming from afar, held their ground bravely at first, but as the officers and commanders staring dying one by one, the night captain yells death. They start to panic and slowly fall back. What kind of magic is that? Once the first step backwards is taken, more and more steps backward follow, before the blue-coated shoulders turn and ran, some even abandoning their shields and weapons. Sergeants and officers screamed for the men to form up and hold the ground as they were picked off by Drake from afar. The lancers, seeing the deteriorating situation, also turned and retreated, ignoring the panicking men, trampling those unlucky to get in their way. Cheers erupted from the Gold Rose side, and some of the hot-blooded soldiers even started pursuing a rutted enemy to cut them down. Hold, you idiots, hold! Lord General Joseph roars at the chasing troops. Form up! Flag-bearer, where are you? Get the men to form up! He storms off towards the shield wall, cursing, then swearing at the hot-headed soldiers. Collins watches the backs of the blue coats running away in fear and felt a sense of extreme satisfaction. All right, guys, good job. The rest of the team started to chat excitedly and bragging amongst themselves over the firefight. Okay, enough. You guys are like gossiping wives. Go police up and spend cartridges. Shireen walks towards Collins and kneels down in gratitude to him and his team, and the rest of the Gold Rose people also follow suit and kneels down thanking their saviors. We thank you from the bottom of our heart for saving my people. She said sincerely to Collins. Collins, who was halfway reporting back to base, jolts in surprise as a crowd of elves suddenly kneels down to them. Um, base? They're kneeling down to me. Um, what do I do? 
Base over. End of chapter. Chapter 36. Elves. Um, what do I do now, Base? Over. Blake grins. He watches the UAV feed of the needing elves around Sergeant Collins. <laughs> Maybe they're gonna crown him king or something, he jokes, inciting laughter amongst the bridge crew. All right, tell him to hold tight and secure the rear. Backup is coming, Blake laughs. He will be fine. Direct the UAV to provide overwatch and alert dogfight if the enemy shows signs of approaching. Ford, I remember there should be a first contact manual with an alien race somewhere in the system, right? Dig it out, and also the universal translator. Blake turns his head towards Ensign Clara. Ensign, work with the EXO over the language translations. You're going to be the official translator. Collins moaned when he received Blake's reply. Ugh. Securing the rear is easy, but dealing with an alien race. Boot camp didn't teach me anything. He glances around at the team who quickly avoid his eyes and sighs. Walking up to the noble-looking lady, he reaches out a hand to help her up and points towards the pass with a hurry-up gesture which he hopes she understands. Shireen looks up at the man in the strange patterned clothes and gestures her to stand up and points towards the pass. She understands the man is telling her to move to safety from his gestures. She nods, touched by his actions, as most nobles will be bragging how great they are for saving you, and will be trying to falter or ignore the interests of the common people. She rises up and, taking his hand as support, and brushes off the dust from the travelling dress. She was able to thank him again when he noticed that he was already turned around and heading off towards the rear guard with some of his men. Private Drake dumps a collected spent cartridges into his pouch and strolls up to Collins, and a few golden boys watching him earlier now look at him with awe and respect. He smiles smugly at the cradles his rifle over his chest like a baby, and he calls out to Collins. Hey, Sarge, frag much? Great work with the sniping. They walked to the sea of bodies littering the mountain path. Check this out. Colin squats down on the left of the visor of the metallic helmet of the dead blue-coated soldier. Same ears and features, some kind of civil war. Collins looks over the bodies. No, not civil war. The different colors are insignia too. Even weapons are slightly different. Drake picks up several swords and lays them side by side. Oh, here comes their big shot, he warns Collins, seeing the old vet walk over. Collins straightens up and points towards the pass trying to convey to the old vet to move to his forces towards the pass. The old vet nods in understanding and points at the body and mimics picking, seemingly indicating that they want to loot the salvage, their weapons and armor. Collins also nods and steps back, allowing the vet to send his men to strip the bodies and retrieve the wounded. I think it was asking for permission to loot the bodies or something, Collins says to Drake. Yeah, since we did the killing, we should have the rights to do it, I guess. Drake shrugs, as he watched the soldiers carrying the wounded away, stripping and stacking weapons and armor aside, while giving mercy killings to the badly wounded men on both sides. She's very pretty, huh? Yeah, out of this world, Colin sighs. Let's help them out with the wounded and dead. We got a UOV cover, so there are no worries of a surprise attack. Damn, we needed medics here fast. Looking at the wounded, half of them won't make it before the medics come in time. Magister Thorn, Shireen fires an old master magician sitting on the boulder next to the dragon wagon. He, his right shoulder is swaddled with bandages and stained with dried blood. 
Why are you not resting inside? she cried, gesturing to the magician's apprentices to carry him to the wagon to rest. No, child, it's all right. I wanted to see what magic they wield. He feebly waves her and her apprentice off. Come closer. I have something to tell you. Shireen leans forward and the magician's sworn whispers in her ear. I don't sense any magic power from them at all. They're not using magic. What? She looks surprised. But their power, it's almost as powerful as a level 5 spell. Thorn coughs and wheezed. I do not know how they harness the elemental forces, but I did not sense anything from them at all. Wiping the flecks of blood from his mouth, I will advise making friends with them, with their power to harness the elements, how people can be saved. I understand, Magister, she said seriously. Please rest, you need your strength. She looks up at the apprentices and the side and asks, Have you given him the healing potion? They looked at each other, guilty, not daring to meet her eyes. What? Why didn't you give him the potion? She stood up angrily. What have you done with it? Calm down, child. I told them not to waste it on me. Magister Thorne coughs again. I know my time is up. Why waste such a valuable potion on me, when there are so many others that need it? I told them to give it to the wounded. No, Magister Thorne, you will be all right. Shireen cried, tears falling. Too many of her people, her close friends, have died. Her heart couldn't take too much more of the sadness anymore. Trent Oaktor cautiously touched the sides of the blue-gray magical wagon parked at the pass. It felt cold and hard like iron, not wood. But who was crazy enough to use iron to build a wagon? His plate mail itself would have cost the kingdom's treasury tens of gold coins. The more he examined the wagon, the more impressed he became. The low hunched shape of the wagon looks like a predator, waiting to jump at its prey. The padded chairs attached to the inside obviously provides greater comfort to the riders. What kind of people are they if they can build something like this? Suddenly he noticed a dust cloud approaching from the seaward side of the mountain, he lifts his hand to shade his eyes and peers towards the dust cloud. The rapidly approaching object slowly came into focus as they neared, and he yells excitedly to alert the sergeant as more strange magical wagons arrive. End of chapter Chapter 37 Disaster Relief Staff Sergeant Pike leaps from his half-track and bangs the rear containing housing troops and medical personnel. All right, men, unload, form up by your sections. The half-track starts unloading people and supplies. Jeeps, cover the pass. The two jeeps slowly roll forward through the crowd of amazed elves into the pass to cover the approaches with the mounted PK-229s. Staff, Collins threw a salute and gave a quick report to Staff Sergeant Pike. So far, we got 227 of the natives wounded, with another 59 probably won't be able to make it unless they get to bed bay quick. He gestures to a pile of half-naked bodies dumped down the mountain slope. 112 enemies confirmed KIA, 48 wounded and in custody. I think it might be some kind of war going on between two countries. Great work, Pike nods, crouching at the edge of the slope and looking at the bodies. Already the local scavengers have started to feast on the dead. Why not burn them? Won't it cause an epidemic? Pike asks. I think the locals think it's too much work. Plus, Colin gestures around the barren mountain slopes. Not much firewood around here. Better to feed the wildlife here. 
How do they fight with the weapons that they use? Pike questions Collins. Mostly with sword, spear, and shields. For range, they use bows and crossbows. Collins points to the battlefield. They mostly fight in a shield wall, using heavy armored infantry to anchor the enemy, while the croc cavalry charges in like a hammer. Hmm, very similar to our own medieval tactics, Pike observed the nearby elven soldiers, looking at the armor covering their bodies. Our weapon's effectiveness... Overwhelming stuff, the bullets overpenetrate in fact, with them standing in formation our rounds go through them like paper. Collins grins as he remembers the fight, they might as well throw away their arms and shields. Understood, Pike nods before turning around and hops up a boulder, shouting for the team leaders to gather up for a briefing. Alright everyone, so we are dealing with some kind of alien owls in the alien world, all fun and games here. He rubs his hands together. We are going to treat this as a disaster relief mission. Medical team leads are to organize your men to help with the wounded. Support teams are to set up cook tents and sleeping areas for the refugees. He points to the rear of the pass. Our supplies are limited, but we will do what we can for them. Pike hops off the boulder, clapping his hands. Get to work. Thank you. Pike turns to Collins and asks, Who's in charge of the Goldies? Him for the troops and her for the civilians, I think. Collins points towards a grizzly-looking vet standing next to the wagon pulled by a giant croc thingy, where pointing at another lady with a pink blonde on the other side. Got it. And he heads towards where the vet Collins points first. Sir, Pike executes a perfect parade square salute and a grizzled veteran wearing some sort of golden robes under the chest plate. Lord General Joseph eyes the approaching stranger in that confusing green-brown patterned clothing. The strange short ears and the wearing an unfamiliar cap style. With a matching shirt and pants in that confusing blend of green and brown. What appears to be a chest plate colored in the same ways as his clothes with lots of small pouches and bags. And that crossbow-like weapon that spits fire and thunder strapped underneath his chest diagonally. With his years of experience as a soldier, he recognizes a fellow soldier from the way he walks and holds himself. That man is dangerous, Joseph thought, returning the salute by thumping his left hand over his chest. Not only their weapons are formidable, even their armor and items of clothing look finely crafted. Pike follows up with a salute to a beautiful lady with the pink blonde hair, dressed in a dust-stained ivory-colored dress with a slender golden belt. Damn, elves, even the old man looks handsome, shaking his head. He gestures for both of them to follow him. Once he is sure that they understand what he is trying to convey, he leads them way over to the pass. Shireen glances at Joseph, wondering what the strange man is bringing them to see. She notices two more of those magical wagons parked on both sides of the pass, with what appears to be soldiers and those strange thunder weapons as standing guard. Do you think they meant us ill? She whispers to Joseph. Lord General Joseph eyes the strange soldiers and their gear, recognizing the level of professionalism, with the way they stand and hold themselves. If they meant us ill, we'd be completely at their mercy, especially with those thunder sticks of theirs. We can only hope that they treat us fairly. The strange soldier points towards a group of people in the distance at the bottom of the slope. They appear to be setting up some tents, the soldier points to the direction of the wounded and mimics carrying motion and points them tense at the bottom again. He's trying to tell us to move the wounded there, Shireen asks Joseph, who nods, confirming her guess.
All right, I'll get them to be moved down there. Pike, seeing the two elves understanding his instructions, then points to a group of civilians milling about. He then mimics walking with his two fingers and points to the another site, where some supplies were dropped earlier. Both owls nod again. Pike, pleased with himself, gestures them to get their people moving, before he turns and jogs down the half-track turned temporarily command center. He pulls open the rear hatch in the half-track and climbs in. Set on the side of the compartment are several communications devices and computer screens set up. He gestures to the tech sitting on the console to connect him to base as he prepares to make a report. Bouncing up and down in the rear of the jeep, Hanson Clara hugs the microcomp tightly in one hand, while the other held dearly onto the handles on the side. The speeding jeep with an escort at the rear bursts through the foliage like a racer. The jolt of crudely suspension slams her hard against the rear. Woo-wee! Private Mills whoops and flexes his knees while he grips tightly onto the empty gun mount when all four of the jeep wheels left the ground. Ah, that was fun. Let's do that again. Martley, I didn't know that you could drive like that. Corporal James hooks his arm against the hand grip in the co-driver's seat, grinning, enjoying the wind and the roller coaster ride through the forest. Madame, are you all good behind? He yells over the wind. You marines are crazy. Come back, I reply. Mills looks back from his perch and grins, yelling, Come on, we're not crazy. He grins wickedly. Just insane. <laughs> the speeding jeep bounces over the pass, planes, and pulls to a stop next to the command half track. Corporal James with a party of four and Ensign Clara reporting for duty. James reports to staff Pike, and they formed up on a half track with a pale-faced Clara. You guys made it here faster. Pike looks at Clara and asks, You're all right, madame. Just peachy staff. Clara swallows the urge to vomit, while the rest of the marines try to keep a straight face. I'll go sit up inside after I get some air first. She stumbles off to the side of the half-track while hugging her computer. Now, what did you sons of witches do? Pike places a hand on the waist and glares at the five of them standing in attention. Nothing, staff. Just a bumpy ride, staff. The chorus together in tune. Feeling better, Clara climbs off the rear compartment of the half-track and places down the microcomputer loaded with the universal translator and boots it up. She rubs her forehead and pats her chest to smooth away the nausea feeding. Damn jugheads! But she had to admit speeding jeep through the forest was pretty exciting and fun, except for the getting car sick. All right, to work. She connects her tablet to sync up with the microcomputer and inputs the command to the universal translator software, which was older than her, used at a time for the first contact with meeting an alien races when mankind had just started exploring the galaxy. She read the manual before heading over to the Saddish Drive. The translator will require a comparison from the language you want to translate to and the language to be translated to. For example, the word tree will require both languages to input. The more references, the better, as the system will learn to get better over time. O tablet beep twice, indicating the transfer is complete and the software is in sync with the universal translator. Now, what I need is an elf to chat with. End of chapter. Chapter 38. Who Mans? The past couple days had been the most confusing experience for Shireen Goldrose. 
The short-eared strangers were called Who-mans. In their language, from her loop-sided conversations with the Who-man called Kara. The magical equipment Kara held in her hand was nothing like any magical item that she had ever seen before. It could converse with someone else a thousand paces away, showing, moving her still images and even text. They have no need of scrolls or parchment as all came writing into the device. Kara calls it Technology, or something, and Shireen realizes with each passing hour she spends conversing with Kara that her grasp of their language gets better and better. How powerful that must be. Not to mention how humble, polite, and efficient the people are. The humans spend less than a day setting up the tents for her people, providing food and waving off offers of pavement with kind smiles. Kara had tried to explain that her that they had be here to help or save them from the disaster. She got confused with all the terms the human uses, but she has to admit that they are humans of very dedicated to their work. The magical wagons are called Kara calls a G and a half tack, regularly ran up and down, bringing supplies and men to help build the city of tents. It was nothing short of a miracle. And they have the seers of some kind, as they could tell when the Empire soldiers are attacking, even at nights. And they could even see in the dark, defeating the Empire soldiers three times with the deadly thundersticks, with no casualties at all on their side. I wonder how much more secrets they hold. She smiles at me and she watches the ongoing game between the humans and the children, involving a ball and an objective seems to be to kick the ball into the two poles at the set on both ends of the field. Some of the soldiers on the weird color scheme clothing draw the ball game to the children. She hears the laughter of the children playing and the cheers from the accompanying adults and felt truly at ease and safe after all that has happened. The Empire's delegation had entered the palace to discuss the Treaty of Peace, but it was just a farce. The so-called ambassadors plotted some of Gold Rose's kingdom's own ministers and murdered the king, queen, and other members of the court while hidden agents in the Empire set fire to various parts of the capital, sowing panic and confusion throughout the kingdom. Luckily, she was at the Summer Palace when Joseph came bearing the grave news. The Empire's army, hiding on the borders, launched a surprise attack, forcing the kingdom to its knees. Her two older brothers, led by Goldrow's army, against the invading Empire, but they fell as one after another. In just three short weeks, all five major cities, including Goldrow's capital, fell. The refugees from those cities, towns, and villages are retreating soldiers gathered under her banner and holding her back in pain. She led them through the goblin-infested forests before arriving at the Sawtooth Mountain. At the start, she had an initial band of over 11,000 soldiers and refugees. After three weeks of running, getting ambushed by numerous crafty goblins and surrounded by death by the Empire soldiers, while others fell to disease or illness, some even lost the will to go on, had diminished to less than 2,000 people now. All the remains of a kingdom are now gathered in a tiny tent city built in the middle of a grass plains. Today she dresses in her best finery that she has left, her ivory dress with long white sleeves trimmed with a gold lace, tied with a golden ribbon around her slender waist. 
her hair braided up like a crown with the breast cascading down her back and wearing a simple tiara. With her was Lord General Joseph bareheaded, in his armor, and the sword polished till the shiny with a golden cloak draped over his shoulder, stood on her left, while matched the thorn, while pale but cheerful, holding his blue manastone topped the ironwood staff. The wearing of a midnight blue scholar robes trimmed with a gold thread stood at her right. The medical skills of the Hoomans proved to be another marvel. Master Thorne, who himself had given up hope of recovery due to the serious injuries incurred from the Empire soldiers, had healed easily by the human's Midas. While advised by the human Mardi to rest and not move around, Magister Thorne strongly felt that he could not be left out of this part of the party to visit the human's capital. To him, nothing short of death shall ever stop him from going. Several pages, apprentices, and military officers also stood anxiously behind them, waiting for the human's arrival. What do you think of the humans? Shireen asked of the other two next to her. Really incredible in their technology. It's amazing, Joseph praised, pointing to the approaching vehicles. If we had those, or even their weapons, we could have saved so many more of our people. Yes, yes. I really am excited to see more of their amazing technology, Thorne agrees. I don't sense any form of magic from the humans, nor from their machines. I wonder how they get these amazing things to work. The approaching vehicle stopped neatly in a line in front of the album party. The rear doors opens and a young, smart-looking human, wearing a body-fitting light grey coat and pants, fastened with bits and colourful metal above his chest pocket, hops down and saluted. I welcome you to come me the two city. He speaks in a barely understandable common tongue and held out his hand towards Shireen. Shireen found her lips curling up in a smile as she gently covers her mouth with her hands and gave a small laugh. I thank you, she replies in English, before accepting his hand and climbing into the rear of the carriage. As she enters the carriage, she found herself in the very spacious interior lit by soft warm lights a soft, lush carpeted floor, and she does not even have to lower her head to walk inside. Surprised by the number of seats inside, two rows of seating were arranged by the sides next to the clear glass windows, which she did not notice from the outside. Glass that clear? How rich are they to put glass in a carriage? The human gestured for her to the end of the carriage where the seats were arranged to face each other. She took the seat to the right, feeling the wondrous soft and comfortable seat comforting her body. She rubs the texture of the seat, feeling the soft and rich fiber and examines the interior of the cabin, trying to understand what and how it's made. She turns to see the rest of the party piling in and looking around acting like country pumpkins. Joseph and Thorne sat down on the opposite seats facing Shireen. Joseph tried to hide his astonishment to the comforts and the seats and the luxurious interior, while Thorne happily bounced up and down in the seat like a child settling down with a satisfied smile on his face. Yeah, the seats feel better than my feather goose bed back in the capital. Mind you, I paid quite a lump sum of gold for that. I think I can persuade them to let me have this. He gave the seat a few more bounces before finding the best position to sit. Once the rest of the contingent were settled down on their seats, the human closed the door at the rear and walks over and sat next to her, and spoke into a device set in his arm. Almost immediately, 
A slight quiver could be felt and she found the vehicle moving. She glances out the crystal clear window, watching the scenery fly past them, seemingly faster than dragon wagon or even a carrier verum. The expected humps and bumps did not appear, nor even the usual creaks and groans of wagons or carriages. Even as she watches the vehicle moving up and down on uneven ground, the ride was the smoothest and quietest that she had ever had. She turns to find both Joseph and Thorne with their heads glued to the windows. In fact, the whole party has their faces at the windows, watching the scenery fly past. She sees the human sitting next to her giving her a smile. Our ride feel good, yes? She bites back an urge to laugh out, and instead politely smiles and nods. Very good. Before turning to watch the flowing scenery, her mind racing. Her smile slowly changes to a frown when she worriedly thought to herself, What can we offer the humans? They have so powerful tools and magic. What cards do I have to bring to the negotiation table which can benefit my people? End of chapter Chapter 39 Castle of Iron Blake looks in the mirror, adjusting the loose collar of his dress whites. Since crash-landing here for more than two months now, he lost quite some weight. Despite his gaunt-looking face, he never felt much better or healthier, except maybe during basic training. He pulls his pee-cap off his freshly cropped hair and steps out of his cabin. Ford stood outside, waiting and wearing a dress whites and rows of ribbons displaying his services. Damn! I think I need to get it to the tailor again. It feels kind of baggy. Ford took a glance over at Blake and smiles. Sir, you look dashing. It suits you perfectly. Blake shook his head and heads towards the flight deck to await the arrival of the owls. Well, I think we know what we should and shouldn't say to them later in the meeting. Blake gave them a quick reminder to Ford. But I still don't understand why to waste resources to make the VIP car. Well, it's the shock tactics, Ford explains patiently, shocking all them from our investigations regarding the elves. They are way technologically backward compared to us. I know, but we need a workforce capable of providing food for us, Blake said, as they enter the elevator. We need all hands on deck just to maintain our tech. That's why we can't let them know our weakness, Ford said. We can offer protection and knowledge to them in exchange for food and raw materials. Make our men bleed for them, Blake frowned. As the doors of the elevator opened, they walked out. I'm preferring to let them learn to defend themselves. I hope to be able to leave this planet some day and return home. The flight deck was decorated with white and blue banners, and most of the crew, having turned up in the best dress uniforms, stood at attention, waiting for the Alvin guests to arrive. Captain on the deck, a marine yells, as Blake and Ford step into the flight deck. The crews visibly straighten, and Blake salutes the officers before telling them to be at ease. He stood at the center of a parade, with Ford at his side, and he looks at the gaping bay doors, which overlooks the sprawling base colony. Almost a month passed since the walls raids, and the perimeter walls have just finished construction. Several small apartments formed in the residential area of crews next to the large plots of farmland, which now grows several Terran crops and the local Karato variety. Several larger buildings in the center form an administrative and work offices, while dozens of warehouses and factories were built next to the ship. 
Hope we can work out something beneficial to us with the owls, Rake thinks, as he eyes the approaching convoy in the distance. Watching the walls of the city approaching from the window of the carriage, everyone slowly realizes the scale of the walls as the vertical stops at the gate. Shireen tilts her head as high as trying to gauge the height of the massive walls. The huge red iron gate, refurbished from the cargo bay doors, grinds open and the tiny vehicle drives through. Shireen stares at the orderly streets and the oddly shaped buildings. There does not appear to be too many structures around, only manages to count less than twenty. She looks on in amazement as the carriage heads towards the massive structure that appears to be built into the side of the hill. A ramp lays down the side of the structure and a huge entrance lays beyond that. The vehicle climbs up the ramp and she found herself stumped. The walls of the structure don't look like stone, rather some kind of material that she is not sure of. Frank, the human escort, gestures her to exit the doors of the rear opening. She stood at the exit of the carriage, staring down into the red carpet set into the floor that is so long. She couldn't imagine how much work was required to sew them. Standing at attention on both sides of the red carpet would neatly form squares of humans in similar grey uniforms. She notices amongst the humans wearing the same coloured uniforms were also females mixed inside. Does that mean their females fight too? The huge cavern-like interior simply boggles her mind. How did they build the ceiling so high with even having pillars of support? Magic. As the steps down into the carpet, a band of some sort starts playing some kind of foreign music, but she couldn't see anyone playing. Standing in the middle of the carpet, her two human males, both wearing white and matching white hats with colourful bits of decoration on the chest, then she strolls up towards the two humans with their entourage trying not to gape at everything. Two rows of human soldiers suddenly snap to attention and snap their thundersticks, raising them vertically. Everyone in their party was startled by the display. Shireen forced herself to remain calm and tried not to show any reaction. They must be testing us to show any fear. They will surely treat us with less respect. Other than Shireen, Holy Joseph remains undisturbed, raising only an eyebrow as he walks behind the princess. Welcome to base colony. Blake bows with his left hand over his chest, displaying his knowledge of the elven greetings. That they have observed. My name is Richard Blake, captain of the UNS Singapore. He spoke almost near-perfect common tongue mixed with some English words that couldn't be translated. And this is my second-in-command, Commander Kevin Ford. A tall, thin, cold-looking man with jet-black hair bows in the same manner to Shireen and her party. How honored to hear! Shireen replies in English and gives her best, charming smiles the grey-haired, blue-eyed, gaunt-looking human in front of her while doing a curtsy of sorts. She then introduced her party to the humans in return, from Joseph to Thorn before the rest of the entourage. Blake laughs, listening to her hard-working attempts at speaking English, and said, Speak your tongue. I believe it'll be easier for you. Since all of them wear a translator earpiece, they could understand the elves. Thank you, my lord. Shireen smiles with a sigh of relief at the same time. Learning a new language in less than two days is very taxing on her when there are so many other things to do. Come, refreshments have been prepared. Blake gestures and directs them towards the interior of the ship. Shireen felt her footsteps sound strange as they walked into the hallway. She experimentally wraps her knuckles against the seamless-looking walls. 
and it rang out with a metallic clunk. The gods! It's all iron! She turns and saw the human watching her with a curious look. She quickly gave a cough and smiles. Oh, I was just wondering about something. The human forward smiles in a way that Shireen thinks that all merchants that she has ever met before. Yes, as you imagined, it is made out of iron, steel, to be more exact. The rest of her party, hearing her burst out in a loud amount of whispers, Iron, steel, all of it. Come, I am sure everyone is tired from the journey. It is better to talk while seated with some food and drinks first. Blake gave the side glance at Ford, knowing that what he was trying to do. Tired? Shireen thought inwardly. The trip in the carriage was one of the most comfortable that she had ever had in her life. It took less than five turns of a glass. He must be joking. Ford just smiles in return and the party continues the way down the halls and finally into the ship's ballroom. We will be happy to give you a tour around later. Magister Thorne, hearing that they will be giving a tour around, nearly burst from excitement. He asks, Can we see where you make your wagons? What kind of magic do you use? The translator couldn't translate the word magic, so Blake and Ford was not too sure about what the professor looking elf was trying to say, but Blake replied politely. The wagons. You mean the cars. Yes, of course. Shireen and Joseph looked at each other in surprise, stunned at the thought that they could see the secrets behind the wagons. Are humans serious? Ford watched their faces caught the looks passed between the elves and smiles wickedly, rubbing his hands. Oh, how much good stuff we can squeeze out of them. They entered into the luxuriously furnished room, the human aesthetic very different from her kingdom. They appear to decorate with bright colors, like white and red. The walls were lined with a kind of redwood, thickly carpeted flooring and a large, soft-looking armchairs set in a semicircle with tiny tables on the side. At the rear of the room, as large as a dance hall and a castle, held several tables with plates and dishes draped with a white cloth. She found the whole room strangely bright, light, but some sort of magical lamp set into the walls and ceiling. They have not even started any talks, and she had already was very impressed and intimidated by the humans. Their mastery of magic has already surpassed everything and anything that she knew. In her heart, she felt like a child without any knowledge of the world in front of these beings. End of chapter Chapter 40 Sugar, Spice, and Everything's a Lie as the ballroom starts filling up with humans, Shireen took the opportunity to speak with Joseph and Thorne at the table. What does everyone think of the humans? she asks in a low voice. Very fascinating, Magister Thorne said, stroking his beard. Their knowledge clearly is way beyond ours. Thorne gestures at the lights in the hall. How they make lights and magic on temperature of the room is just right. They have very good control of the elements of magic. Rich and powerful, Joseph gave his observations. Looking at the quality of the clothes, the iron castle, and the tall city walls, their number of soldiers with the thunder sticks are even these. He rubs his fine tablecloth. They must have a very strong industry to keep deep treasury. But surprisingly, we do not see much buildings in the city. Yes, they have some very powerful magicians. I wonder if we will be able to meet them. Shireen answers back. I do find the lack of buildings in the city strange, and the city walls who would build that tall. She agrees with both advisors' observations. The question is now, what can we offer them in exchange for their help? 
That, Joseph stammers, we could try marriage with the Lord, the human Captain Blake. Shireen glares sternly at Joseph till he coughs comfortably. Marriage is out of the question, Thorne speaks up for Shireen. We don't know what their kind of race they are. What do we do? Shireen frowns. Offer our lives in exchange for protection from the Empire. Isn't that the same as being a slave? Joseph speaks harshly. Enough of our people are slaves to the Empire already. And now, to the other race. What if they are like the Empire too? All of this is just a trick. Shh! Lower your tone, Joseph. It's the way you speak to your princess. Thorn rebuked Joseph, and the group attracted the attention of the humans around them. Where are you thinking of ideas? Is everything okay? Is there something you're unhappy with? We will try our best to accommodate it. Blake walks over and asks them. Blake and Ford had earlier proposed giving the elves some space to talk amongst themselves, giving the elves the impression of respecting their privacy. But in truth, the ship's security directional microphone picked up every word and sentence they spoke, transmitting it to their earpieces. Blake used the outburst as an opportunity to break their momentum. He more or less understood what their agenda was all about. Interesting, he thought. Unaware that their hosts had been eavesdropping on their conversation, Shireen smiles and said, Yes, we are fine. There is nothing to be worried about. That's good. Would you like a guide to the buffet table? Blake graciously asked, offering his hand to Shireen. Would you care to be my partner? Thank you. Shireen shyly takes Blake's offered hand. She then turns and gave a warning look to the two grown men, warning them to behave themselves before allowing Blake to lead her towards a row of tables laden with dishes of food and drinks. Joseph and Thorne, chastened with nothing better to do, latch themselves onto Ford and starts bombarding him with questions like, How's the castle built out of iron and steel? What is technology? And how does that work? Much to the dismay of Forge, judging from the expression he has on his face. What do you think of everything so far? Blake opens up the conversation. Wonderful, Shireen replies sincerely. I haven't thanked you yet for your help that you sent to my people. Shireen gave a bow. Thank you for saving my people, she said formally to Blake. It's our duty, Blake said, waving her all for thanks. We just couldn't sit and watch people dying. Why is it your duty? she asked, curiously, as to why the human Blake was still sent to save her people. My people grew up learning and being taught that the strong should protect the weak, Blake explains. Right or wrong, justice, the morals are upheld by honor and integrity. I think I understand. Shireen nods her pretty little head. Some of the words were in English, but she understands the gist of it mostly. Like the old fairy tales of knights and chivalry told by her mother and nursemaid when she was a little girl as a bedtime stories. I've been waiting to ask this, Shireen points to the rows of colorful decorations on Blake's uniform. What are those for? I saw it on almost everyone's clothes, some many, while others just have one or two. Oh, these. Jake points down towards his uniform. They are medals. He spoke the word medal in English, as his real-time translator did not have an equivalent word. Rewards for merit or combat, he gave a simplified explanation after seeing her blank look. Oh, medals, she understood after the explanation. Blake's translator picked up the new word and automatically updated the cloud server. Then you must be a great soldier for you to have many medals. She gave a charming smile to Blake.
I am... no, not really. Blake looks away, embarrassed from the million-voltage smile. Her beauty is overwhelming his senses. He felt light-headed, his heart suddenly beating rapidly and strangely attracted to her, with the urge to hug and protect her from all things. You call us elves. Why? she asks. Well, due to a very old text that we have, there was the descriptions of your race. It looks very similar to you and your people, Blake explains, especially the long ears. He stares at Shireen intently, observing every feature of her face. Where are you people from? Shireen continues to question Blake. From Earth, Blake speaks softly, but not soft enough for Shireen as her ears perk up. Eighth... She tries and tilts her head in confusion, exposing her fine neckline to Blake's stare, seemingly oblivious to his stare. What is that? Our home planet from the stars, many light years beyond this planet. Blake answers faithfully, using English words that Shireen could barely understand. Are you alright? Shireen finally notices Blake's face turning slightly red, leans closer to his face. She was close enough for him to smell the sweet womanly fragrance from her. He feels his loins stirring and starts to feel harder to breathe. Captain Blake, a voice jolts him awake. Blake blinks his eyes in confusion and takes a small step back, keeping a short distance away from Shireen. Hello, are you going to introduce us? Dr. Sharon and Chief Matt stood smiling behind Blake and Shireen, with glasses of champagne in their hands, and they call out to Blake. No. Blake took a deep breath, recovering his composure. This is the Princess Shireen Goldrose of the Goldrose Kingdom. He pauses to calm his racing heart and gestures. This is the good Dr. Sharon and our Chief Engineering Officer, Matt Patterson. Shireen gives a small curtsy to both humans while they gave a bow in return after the introductions were done. Sharon hooks her arm under Shireen's and drags her off to try on the food. I'll be borrowing the princess. You boys go do what boys normally do. Captain, are you okay? Your face is very red. Chief Matt hands a glass of water over to Blake as he sat down on a nearby chair. Something is wrong. I am not sure what. Blake checks his personal bio readings and his wristwatch. His elevated heart rate of 134, blood pressure slightly higher than normal, body temperature is up by 1 degree Celsius. No signs of poison detected. Blake frowns slightly. What had gotten into him? He glances up to find the princess and Sharon happily talking about plates of food. He admits that the elf princess is very cute and pretty, but to get love-struck like a boy? Strange. Maybe it's the weather and all of these. Matt gestures around the hall. Drink some water and let Dr. Sharon give you the ones over later. I think so too. I'll drink more water. Blake assures Matt while trying to figure out what had happened. Try this and that. Sharon directs Shireen to the different kinds of pastries and finger foods prepared specifically for this event. Oh, you'll love this. Since young, her education and upbringing as a princess of a kingdom, Shireen had tried and experienced all kinds of exotic and fine cooking. But this food, which she tasted, was out of the ordinary. The sweetness and savory flavors, the perfect blend of spices and seasoning... She temporarily forgot her manners and wolfed out each dish that Sharon recommended to her. The amount of sugar and spices used would bankrupt a small town. Shireen was once again amazed by the spending power of these humans having the chef with the skills to cook such dishes. He would be in great demand by all the nobles in the whole of the known world. 
The drinks which Sharon poured for her were called fruit punch to taste deliciously sweet and tart, while the bubbly champagne wine was nothing like she had ever tried before. And finally, dessert. Cakes and tiny pies of fruit and cream topped in a dark brown sauce. Most of all, she fell in love with a wonderful bittersweet taste. Chocolate. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.